the hills, the hills, the hills are alive with the sound, the sound, the sound of fucking music. (laughs) So stupid. This is Four Friends Fight About Film, a podcast about movies and things more important than movies, if we ever find any. We are back, and we are recording just outside of beautiful Chattanooga, Tennessee. Chat town. Uh, Gibby, I <laughs> is believe... That what people call it? <laughs> Chat town. Yeah, I think so. Now they That's do. what they called it at the bar last night, right? Uh, oh, y'all get out of Chat town. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember that. <laughs> do we need some context? Why are we meeting in Chattanooga? I would what? like that context. Oh, yeah. I don't know what we're doing here. <laughs> okay, why are we meeting in Chattanooga? <laughs> Jordan has moved away. Yeah, I moved to Nashville. About a year ago? A year, exactly a year ago. The three of us are in Atlanta, and part of why these episodes have been so long up until this season was because of this big move, and so uh, we are trying to figure out how to navigate that. We all decided to meet in the middle, which is beautiful Chattanooga, Tennessee. All right, today's episode is another fun one. None of us had any chance in the... Choice. That word's (laughs) choice. All right. We're off to a great start. <laughs> Once again, a thing that Gibby typed up that none of us read before today. <laughs> like my notes. Yeah. <laughs> none of us had any choice in the movies week today because we all had that special lady in our life pick the movie. No, not our wives or girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> Sensitive topic. <laughs> this was written a month ago. <laughs> I'm sure it still applies. Yeah. <laughs> but but our moms. Love you, mom. We asked each of our moms to pick their three favorite movies, and voila, we have something that resembles a show. <laughs> well, so let's be clear, too. Our timing is terrible. This was supposed to be a Mother's Day episode. <laughs> to kick us off, say your name, and what movie would you have picked for your mom to watch? My name is Hudson. I think I would have gone with a movie we've talked about probably way too many times, and you guys give me a hard time for is the film About Time. Um, oh. I just I don't know if my mom's seen it. And I would love to see what she thinks about it. It being a father son story, and I'll get into my own story in life with my mom and my parents uh, growing up and all that in a little bit. And I would just I just think it would be a very powerful movie to talk talk about my mom with, talk about with my mom. <laughs> What's your mom's name? My mom's name is Susan. Cool. My mom's name is Barbara. Barb. No, just Barbara. Sometimes Barbie. Anyway, the movie that uh, I would pick for her to watch is a movie that I haven't even seen, but maybe it would get me a chance to see it, which is Die Hard at GAC. (laughs) (laughs) It's classic. Somebody want to explain what that means? Uh, It's a film we made back in um, high school. I don't know why you would pick that for your mom. Because I'd get to watch it with her. Oh, okay. Cool. So it's really a film you pick for you. (laughs) Yes. Okay. All right. My mom can watch whatever she wants. It's your question. You answer it however you want. I didn't ask the question. My mom's name is Lynn. I don't know what I'd pick for. Anything I pick for, though, I know the first question would be, is there anything sad in it? Is, that, is there, is there some, something sad? I don't like sad stuff. Love you, Mom. Uh, this is Kyle, KT, Gibster, Gibberino, Gibson. And uh, for Kim, I would pick The Good Son because she's got a lot of sons and she needs to know which one's the best. Oh, wow. That's me. Which one's the good? Yeah, which one's the good, which one's the bad. I'm the good. Although I think in that movie, The Good Son has like killed a bunch of people. Well, that went off the rails. <laughs> never, I've never seen it. Also, spoiler alert. No. <laughs> nice kid. All right. We asked you guys on Facebook and Twitter to name some of your favorite, uh, some of your mom's favorite movies. And you, you some of you replied, like at least four of you. 
Thanks. So uh, here are some of those responses. Gibby, you want to take this first one from Adam Williams? Sure. Adam Williams replied on Twitter, My mom's favorite movies were The Englishman Who Went Up a Hill and Came Down a Mountain, Sound of Music, and Mary Poppins. Uh, did anybody see Englishman Who Went Up a Hill and Came Down a Mountain? No. Never did. I heard I it was it, good. I saw it in the theaters. Really? Wow. Yeah. I'm yeah. not sure I've ever heard of it. Oh, yeah. Hugh Grant. It's it, a weird it's movie a to British be someone's movie. favorite. It's such a tiny kind of obscure film. Yeah, well, but think, it, it was really known for its title because the title was right, so it was long. Really long. Adam's mom seems to have liked mountains because there's mountains inside of music. and Maybe she loved hills. Yeah, that's true. Probably maybe, mountains maybe. and Mary Poppins. Yeah, maybe she loved Probably. Englishmen. Yeah. All right, this next one is uh, Hope Mullins Godleski. Lance, you want to do this one? Yeah, I'll do it. My mom was a huge John Wayne fan. Her favorites were McClintock and The Quiet Man. McClintock is pretty in- entertaining for an old Western. <laughs> Teeth open, smiling emoji. Obama. Correct. <laughs> That's good. So are any of you guys uh, John Wayne fans? Yeah. I've never seen any of those two movies. No, me neither. No, there's three. No, there's two. No, there's three. Two. But all three of Hope's, mo- Hope's mom's movies are Westerns, right? Two. Yeah, uh, Quiet like Man's a great movie. I've never seen McClintock. I've heard it's pretty great. Of course, I, I also heard that from Hope. So. I hear it's pretty entertaining for an old Western. Yeah, I've does heard that. Does McClintock too. have an exclamation point in the title? It does. Yes. It, does. it does. So you got to scream it. All right, this next one is uh, from Susan Stag Cooper. I'll take this one. Yay! Looking forward to it. My mom's favorite is probably National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. I'm also a mom, but I can't ever pick favorites. There are too many. However, my stock answer, in case I ever get kidnapped by aliens and need to prove that I'm the real Susan, is Muppets Take Manhattan. It's not about you, Susan. It's about your mom. My mom also loved... No, my mom loved... European vacation. And I remember her coming to like my fifth grade class and someone asking her favorite movies and she gave, she said European vacation. I don't think she remembered all the kind of like oh, yeah. nudity dirty, and, yeah. and stuff in it. Muppet's Hate with Manhattan, also awesome movie. Your mom's Great really fun. into some raunchy stuff. Well, we will get into such that. such a sex freak. I'm kidding, Susan. Love you. Um, all right. If you want your favorites to add on the show, you can leave us comments at facebook.com slash fightaboutfilm or at fightaboutfilm on Twitter. So, did your moms pick what you had expected? Was this a scary topic when we came up with it? Gibby. Oh, my God. <laughs> in, the, in the show notes, it says, Gibby, isn't your mom dead? This is why we should read, read this before to prep. We, we know because you that? mention it every episode. And Gibby wrote the show notes. Yeah. All right. Thoughts about uh, about moms? You guys? You guys have any thoughts about moms? Like about uh, mo- like wrote, the concept of yeah. motherhood? Or? I'm sure. glad they're moms. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Well, about the movies they picked. I would like to say is until I saw one two nights ago, I thought our moms did a pretty good job and it really wasn't a big time stinker in the whole group. I am, what, oh, what do you oh, think you now? were wrong. Uh-oh. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was surprised how quickly my mom answered my text message yeah, saying, what are your favorite movies? movies and she just you know, named three movies and that was it i would like knowing that my son was doing a podcast talking about actually she may not know that part <laughs> but i would i would like really mill over it for a long time and say oh man what movies am I gonna? you think she's to be intelligent. you think she's been waiting for this day for so long yeah. and she has Finally, been like, oh, yeah. she made the list after he's involving the first me he's involving me in his life <laughs> yeah I, my mom and i have talked like my whole life about what her favorite movies are and my mom and i we i think we we've watched a number of movies together cool. you know uh, she's take me to the movies sometimes so I wasn't surprised at all. Yeah, my mom is from the if it ain't broke, don't fix it camp. So she has always had that kind of same stable of movies she loves to revisit. So I kind of knew what was coming here. She actually was interesting. She picked a movie that one of you guys' moms had already picked. So there was a little bit of crossover Ooh. between the moms' picks. Yeah. Yeah. We'll get to no that doubt. a little bit later. What yeah. I want to know before we j- 
jump into this is like it's just kind of like what your moms are like so that i have an idea of what your mom's like with unless you're going to talk about that with her choices i'll talk about it a, a little, little bit. bit a little bit my mom's uh i was pretty chill pretty chill she's a, she's a peacekeeper she's a prayer warrior mine too mm. that, that kind of thing big prayer warrior yeah. although my mom's not into the raunchy stuff that your mom's into yeah well, <laughs> raunchy prayers yeah no my mom's awesome total sweetheart very close with her very loving caring nurturing and lynn um, is very funny as well she, she is she's got a good sense of humor on her big fan of her sense of humor she's a trip I th- apparently like within her group of friends she's the funny one which is <laughs> funny to me totally different than you because i went wittiest i don't know if school. my mom has a friend group yeah. there we go Oh, really? My mom definitely has a friend group. Yeah, my mom Maybe several. Prayer group. Kim's got a big friend group. Oh, they do go hand in hand a lot of times. Yeah. Kim? You want to talk Kim? about Kim? Kim's been my, well, I talked about it a little bit, but she's my boss. Not only <laughs> right. uh, my that's, mother. That's, yeah. that's weird. That's lots of meanings. It's pretty cool. She loves movies. We you know, watch movies all the time. She and I would go plenty of times. And I liked her three picks. I hadn't seen any of them in full before she yeah. picked it so it's kind of huh. funny that her three three favorite movies are ones we'd never watched yeah i had a lot of fun trying to get into the psyche of my mom with these films so i will uh i kind of am interested in exploring your mom's as well, <laughs> as well. man we're, so. we're we're treading some dangerous ground here <laughs> all right all right i'll kick us off here my mom's first pick is the 2015 erotic romantic drama based on el james I'm sorry. 2011 novel erotic? Of the same name, Fifty Shades of Grey. That is a Gibby joke, and you stole it, and I totally had a note joke in my thing. You didn't story. even steal a good joke. You stole a terrible one. I had a lot more prepared, but now that you interrupt me. Don't, yeah, let him start it over. Keep no, going. No, 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 right no, 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 no. My mom's actual first pick is the 2003 film Secondhand Lions, written and directed by Tim McCanleys, who previously wrote one of my very favorite films, Iron Giant. It's about a boy named Walter, played by Haley Joel Osment. This is a few years after he saw dead people uh, as a timid 13-year-old. <laughs> he, he's 13, and in the movie, he looks awfully younger than that. He's just kind yeah, of but his, his voice has changed, yeah, his voice so changed it's like during the movie. super weird to watch him with a lower voice. Yeah. yeah. So he's dropped off by his uh, floozy of a mom to spend the summer on a farm with his two eccentric bachelor uncles, Hub and Garth, played by Robert Duvall and Michael Caine, respectively. The two uncles are said to be sitting on a fortune acquired in their youth as they traveled the world, and they entertain Walter by telling him stories of their adventures, including Hub falling in love with an Arab princess, being on the run from assassins, and a duel with a sheik. But Walter isn't sure any of these stories are actually true, and ultimately it's just a a fun kind of family-friendly coming-of-age film with Walter learning how to become a man. Uh, I think this film most identified with my mom as a uh, floozy who drops off her son, (laughs) (laughs) deserts him. No. You can tell none of our moms listen to the podcast. (laughs) I had all these jokes aimed at Hudson's mom. I don't have to use them. He's he's going after himself. My mom has always had great respect for her own father, my granddad, who grew up on a farm, built furniture with his bare hands, and spent time fishing and gardening. He loved and was loyal to my grandma, even though she was kind of a handful. And like many old men, he believed in values. And I think uh, in my mom's view, of the world there's a nostalgia for a time of these funny tough and righteous old men and while many times in the world i can roll my eyes at the kind of simplicity of the older generation of the kind of black and white version of the world um that there's a speech that hub gives to walter in the film that i really love because it encapsulates a lot of my own beliefs about the world and how i long to bring my own son up with these values he says the things that may or may not be true are the things that a man needs to believe in the most that people are basically good that honor courage and virtue mean everything that power and money money and power mean nothing that good always triumphs over evil and i want you to remember this that love 
true love never dies. You remember that boy. You remember that. Doesn't matter if it's true or not, you see. Man should believe in those things because those are the things worth believing in. Got that? I'm going to talk about that scene real quick because I know Lance sometimes uh, has issues with acting, but that scene, that was some acting right there by Robert Duvall. He is an actor. That was awesome. Yeah, he is an actor. So that makes sense. He's generally regarded as sense. a good one. Like, a great one. I don't really want to open that topic up right now, so <laughs> just, I'll let it lie. This film won an award. Do you guys know about what this award, award that? that it won? Well, sadly, sadly it only won one award. Was it some sort of family-friendly? It won the Best Intergenerational Film Award from the AARP Movies for <laughs> Grown-Ups Awards. <laughs> yeah. I actually watched the 2019 AARP Awards. You did it was not. On TV. Yeah, it was awesome. What won Best Intergenerational Film? Uh, I missed that one. Oh. Hosted, they probably don't hosted, televise that one. Hosted for the 40th straight year by Wilford Brimley. <laughs> well, <that was> Martin, <laughs> Martin Short this year, in fact. Gosh, uh, my mom's really showing her age with that, huh? Yee. This movie, I really liked the story, and I really liked the framework of the sort of flashbacks, but I just felt like every, just about every decision made was, was poorly made. Uh, <laughs> with the exception of Duvall and Kane, who are both yeah, awesome. Except Michael Caine's accent is pretty hard to hang with. But you know who it was originally intended for these roles? Uh, Redford and um, Newman. Newman, yeah, it was going oh, yeah. really? to be, be their third movie yeah. together after um, Butch Cassidy awesome. and The Sting. Yeah, it would. I think that would have been awesome too. I, I feel like they missed a major opportunity, which was all the flashback. Like I don't. I wanted to see Kane and Duvall in those roles mm. as young men, and obviously we can't have them be young in them. Oh, but right. I think it would have been awesome if they were themselves old playing the parts of the young people in the flashback parts because it would switch to the flashback and i'm like these actors are just not it's not that they did a bad job it's just it was it wasn't interesting to me right i wanted to see those two characters in that age doing their thing speaking of age i, I was reading that they had to they had to film all the scenes chronologically because osmond uh -huh. was going through puberty at the time uh, really? <laughs> so what they did to slow it down was they actually cut his testicles off about halfway How through the film. Yeah. Well, that happens in the movie, so that's weird, too. Though. Is that so a real... Like, yeah, they filmed yeah, it. If you watched yeah. it, you would have lion eater. Yeah, it's it. really cool. He really, that was the thing about Osmond. He would always just leave it all on the field for a part, <laughs> including his actual testicles. <laughs> hey, Mom. <laughs> Sorry, you know Susan. You know what's funny about yeah, this movie? Your mom you, knows testicles. <laughs> your mom has touched <laughs> your testicles. Okay. It's huh. good. At so, least one of ours. <laughs> 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 Uh, this me, is why this episode <laughs> might have been a bad idea. I know. <laughs> to me, the movie's a little confused. I mean, you mentioned that it was kid-friendly, but it's really kind of not. Because the it, language is pretty yeah, rough in it's, it. And, it, and yeah. it's pretty violent things. But the way it's filmed is also very kid-friendly. Yes. Like right. it, it, it fell in this middle ground, and I think that's maybe why it didn't quite find its footing with audiences either. Right. It's filmed in that like super safe Disney yeah. like family TV way. kind of thing, yeah. That I really hated, but I enjoyed watching it. Yeah, it's a very um, sweet movie. There's not a big conflict in it or anything, but yeah, the okay the end. Th so the, they reshot the end, and I mm -hmm. tried to hunt down the the original uh, ending, but I couldn't find it. Cost them six hundred thousand dollars to reshoot the ending, and I couldn't figure out what was the plane still you said ending. Yeah. So I watched. So the, the plane was something that uh, they no, added. the plane was there. So basically, that scene was great. Uh, like the opening scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Original ending was just a funeral. Like Josh Lucas comes out, he's the boy grown up, and he does like this funeral scene. It's like ten minutes, and he talks about what his uncles meant to him, and it's in the corn patch, and he gives this overwritten speech 
and basically he recaps everything that just happened in the movie that you watched. <laughs> Good. Uh, but then the the bad guys, the the hoods that Hub beat up, they show up for the funeral older. But instead of the helicopter coming in, there's an 18-wheeler that pulls up to the funeral. Uh, and then these Moroccan men on horses get out, and then a limo shows up, and then the sheik from the stories, he's really old, shows up at the funeral too. Uh, and so they all realize the stories are true. Hmm. But there's a reason that the scenes are cut because that was really awful. Yeah, well, I mean, I think the ending they landed on was also pretty awful. It was significantly better um, than that ending. But wow. So a, a little interesting thing that I, I read and I can't quite figure out that is a subplot in the movie involves Walter's friendship with this old circus lion. And then it's believed that McCandless wrote the story inspired by the childhood of Bill Watterson of Calvin and Hobbes fame because in the film, Walter, when he grows up, he becomes a cartoonist kind of telling these stories mm-hmm. about his pet lion or whatever. But then I was trying to find stuff about Bill Watterson's childhood and it had nothing to do with any of this. And so I'm not sure where, <laughs> other than having that element right. of the cartoonist, where they got that idea from. Yeah, Watterson's a famous recluse too. I'm surprised you're able to find anything about him. Yeah, true. Really. Uh, is it? It was a, it was a weird it was a weird movie. It's it felt weird movie. It felt fun and entertaining, but also clunky and and yeah. weirdly put Kinda together. Stevenson's movies seem to have that theme running through them, as we'll get to later. Weird and clunky and sexy. <laughs> Which sexy. let's give it to Duvall. That is a, he is yeah. a cool looking sob. Yeah, he is. He's awesome. Sorry, Michael Caine. You, you're fine. Thanks too, for censoring that, Mike Caine. Yeah, you're welcome. Hello, Jordan. All right, Jordan. Your uh, okay. <laughs> your mom's first choice here. All right. Barbara's number three. So my mom and I actually have a good bit of overlap in movie taste. We prefer being thrilled over being scared, and a good mystery is going to please us every time. The path splits a little bit, though, when it comes to quote-unquote evil movies. She doesn't like that quite as much as I do. We both like to get fully lost in a movie, unable to think of anything else while we're in that world, and movies with emotional punch and suspenseful plots. Uh, So it should come as no surprise that her first pick is an absolutely essential classic thriller from 1999, Double Jeopardy. <laughs> dun, 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 Starring. Dun, dun, uh, no, that's different. Dun, oh. That's the TV show version. Um, <laughs> it's an adaptation. Yeah. That was with uh, uh, Naomi Judd. <laughs> <laughs> weird, weird joke. Uh, but this one does star Ashley Judd and Tom Lee Jones, directed by a guy who made a million movies you've never heard of. Uh, including one we talk about later. Yeah, on. including Lance's mom's number. Uh, Lin, sorry, I'm trying to get everybody's no name. Spoiler Lin. alerts. Lynn, Lin. yes. Lynn's number one pick, and you're welcome for that uh, misplaced segue. Segue. Uh, by the way, did did they put Tommy Lee Jones on this because Morgan Freeman wasn't available? Well, he'd already done Kiss the Girls with that, Ashley Judd. He'd done about 50 other movies with Ashley Judd, hadn't he? There's this collection <laughs> yeah, of Ashley yeah, Judd movies from like the mid to late 90s. Yeah. But with this kind of role, this is this is a Tommy Lee Jones role. It's not, it's yeah, not it's a... Not well, had Morgan Morgan. Freeman been in it, you could have been like, oh, that's a Morgan Freeman. <laughs> yeah, but I don't know. I decided to give Tommy a chance. Anyway, Ashley Judd, hubba hubba, plays a lady framed for her husband's murder, but she believes the bastard is still alive, so since she's already been convicted of the crime, she can't be re-prosecuted if she hunts him down like a dog and kills him. I'm not sure that's accurate. Yeah, legally, I'm not sure this holds. <laughs> that's what they say. I watched the movie, yeah. and <laughs> right. this is how it played out. No, don't take legal advice based upon 90s films. Why not? Depends on the film. Yeah, do you think they didn't like do the, the research before writing this? <laughs> I know they didn't because I read some research about this saying, yeah, this is all not true at all. You shoot me, they'll give you the gas chamber. No, they won't. It's called double jeopardy. I learned a few things in prison, Nick. I could shoot you in the middle of Mardi Gras and they can't touch me. As an ex-law professor, I can assure you she is right. Anyway, her parole officer is everybody's favorite dude, 
TLJ. TLJ. Uh, here's why my mom loves it. I really like Ashley Judd as an actress and Tommy Lee Jones. The entire story was fascinating. She also likes Tommy Lee Jones as an actress? Um, no. I, <laughs> sure. The entire story was fascinating, somewhat scary, but not terrifying. She was a great character, what a great storyline, and justice prevailed. I feel the same. Your mom reviews movies like me. Yes, <laughs> you are my mom. <laughs> this movie has some real stylistic 90s flaws, but I still love it, and I've loved it since the 90s. Uh, the emotional climax of the film is a truly powerful moment of reunion and payoff, and every time I watch it, I'm standing on the edge of deep tears when the editor decided to cut to a shot that doesn't match the previous shot at all, and my eyes are dry faster than spit on a Georgia sidewalk in July. I still love it, though. There's this, He cuts in her arms in a different place, and it drives me crazy, and I, <laughs> and I can't cry, even though it's a powerful moment. My mom loves these kind of movies. I, I remember like, growing up, my mom, like for some reason, I remember my mom and my dad going on dates to see like Hand That Rocks the Cradle or like all those sorts of like thrillers. CD underbelly of society. Yeah. yeah. That's just what that's just what my mom's into, even though she is not a CD underbelly person. Which probably makes her more anyway. into it. Yeah. It's just so foreign. But I think it informed a lot of my movie taste growing up is that my mom wanted to escape into these worlds that had nothing to do with our experience. We should have done a mom's most disturbing. Ooh. It, it would have been a bunch of not disturbing at all movies. <laughs> kind of like Gibby and I. I always like to imagine this is like the sequel to The Fugitive where like Tommy Lee Jones is now like he got knocked down a few mm -hmm. pegs and he's just, I'm just pro officer now. <laughs> <laughs> so you guys seen this movie? I have. I, I saw it in no. 1999. That was the last time. This was the only one of the 12 Mother movies I didn't get a chance to rewatch. Oh. But I have seen it. It's great. I like it. You know, it's, it is. It's a movie. I, don't know. I, I just, I found it very forgettable. I don't is, know. Is there any Never kind of pleasure point. in that kind of like, you know, I love kind of watching 90s movies now because it just brings me back to that time. Like, to me, it feels like this would feel yeah. like the net yeah. sort of right, thing. Yeah. Set you back to Quick, let's get on America Online. <laughs> Somebody pull up somebody pull up their Netscape. Yeah. She does spend some time online in there. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Cool, 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 cool. So DJ. <laughs> it's my mom's number three, everybody. Yay. Thanks, Barb. Love you, Barb. Rob. Barbie. It's Barb, nobody Rob. calls her Barb. Well, I'm not calling her Barbie. Yeah. Call her Barbara then. Call her Miss Call her uh, Mrs. Noel. Okay. Barbie Noel. Well, she grew up Barbie Burley, which is quite a name. Hmm. All right, we're up to Gibby, number Bobby three. Burley. Bobby Burley. All right, so Kim Gibson, my stepmother, is uh, her first choice. I made a basic instinct joke, which Hudson already ruined by his Fifty Shades of Grey joke. Let's, let's be clear, it. It, was, it was ruined before Hudson ruined it. <laughs> it was going to be was a good ruined one. just by thinking of it. And you guys would have laughed. It's so funny, you would have even clapped. Uh, her, <laughs> her first pick. We're not, is, even, we're not even laughing now. Yeah, you yeah. can still do it. Her first pick is Basic Instinct. Damn it. <laughs> you just say the damn name of the movie. <laughs> Right, we did laugh. <laughs> no clapping, Our first pick is White Christmas, the classic 1954 musical romantic comedy starring Bing Crosby, Danny Kaye, and Rosemary Clooney, aunt of one George Clooney. Crosby and Kay stars Bob Wallace and Phil Davis, possibly the two whitest names in all of Move 3 history. Bob and Phil <laughs> are army vets and now successful song and dance men on Broadway who badly need a break from the hectic pace of life up there. So they dance away to some club in Miami or somewhere where they meet two single ladies who are also a song and dance team. And Danny and the one lady dance and they sing a song and it's pretty cool. It's called Sisters and it's awesome. Uh, yeah. Ooh, but then after that, after which that, I was just reading was, was not in the script and it was just them goofing around on set. No way. Yeah, that's what it says. Hmm. Well, that's pretty cool. My daughters sing that song all the time. Sisters? Because mm -hmm. they're sisters. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. They love that movie. Sisters, sisters, there were never such devoted sisters. 
Never had to have a chaperone, no sir. I'm here to keep my eye on her. Caring, sharing, every little thing that we are wearing. When a certain gentleman arrived from Rome, she wore the dress and I stayed home. Anyway, by some random happenstance, they all end up in a Vermont quaint inn owned by Bob and Phil's former army sergeant, who is by far the best actor in the movie, though he looks younger than Bing Crosby. Uh, it turns out he probably is younger than Bing Crosby. <laughs> really? Uh, yeah, he is. <laughs> um, so that inn is falling on hard times, and Bob and Phil know that by putting on a big show, they can potentially bring in a whole bunch of new clients while also honoring their former commander. There's lots of singing and dancing that commences. Uh, for being a movie called White Christmas, there wasn't a whole lot of Christmas actually in this film. Uh, I guess there was a lot of white. <laughs> Ooh, race issues. Was that your killer joke for the, yeah. for the segment? Pause to be for fair, To be fair, it mostly takes place in Vermont. Yeah, that's true. That's even in 1955. <laughs> right, before black people existed. <laughs> I'm not sure I really like this movie, but I didn't hate it. But to be fair, I just don't love musicals, so it's good that she picked another musical really? for this Oh, list. really? Not like yeah. Sing Street? <laughs> Sing Street! They don't dance. They don't just randomly dance and sing. They kind of do, don't they? You know what a musical is? It doesn't necessarily have to involve a ton of dancing. Yeah, it's, it's, not, it's, not, it's not called a dancical. Right. Hmm. That's a pretty good term. Dancical? Yeah, dancical. Yeah. This is kind of the one that I most regret not watching. I've always wanted to see this movie, and it sounds like a real pleasure. There's some funny lines in it. So I, I, I was, love this movie. Love it. Yeah. I was forced to watch this by a girlfriend a few years ago. By the way, have you noticed how many of my segments start with I was forced to watch <laughs> something? But you think at some point I'd have this moment of introspection where I'm like, maybe I need to be more open-minded. But yeah. nope. Yeah, beloved Christmas movie. I, I think the timing of this movie is interesting too because it was it was it deals with the war when the country was kind of dealing with the aftermath of World War Two. And and I think it was probably kind of needed at that time a little bit. So instead of focusing focusing on the horrors of war, which people had had plenty of at that point, it deals with this friendship that's formed during the war when one person saves another's life, which, by the way, that whole story is hilarious. Mm -hmm. The way he constantly yeah, holds he it over it his up. head that he saved his <laughs> life, so he keeps forcing him to do things yeah. for him. But there's this kind of positivity that comes out of it, which I think was desperately needed. And one thing I found in researching this film that was really interesting is there has never been an official soundtrack of the movie that was released yeah, wow. in any form. Really? Which is odd because it's most famous for its music. Apparently there were a lot of contractual issues at the time with the stars who were tied to other record deals so uh, whoever the studio was that made it couldn't put them all on one album together huh. so yeah i tried to find the album to buy kim for christmas and i ended up having to get like a the musical yeah the actual broadway yeah. musical and it was selections from white christmas or something like yeah that. i had assumed that this was like like the single off of this musical was mm -hmm. white christmas but i think bing crosby had asked, actually released it like yeah like 10 years over ago a decade Holiday before Inn. yeah wow um, I really, really love this movie. I hadn't seen it until I, me and uh, my daughters watched it around Christmas this year, and we all just had a great time watching it. And I found it way more emotionally resonant than I expected huh. it to be. I thought it was going to be like a fluffy mm -hmm. Christmas movie, and it Which really parts, parts of it are, especially but sure. in general stuff. That is pretty touching. Yeah, oh, it absolutely. Is. It is. It's and, well grounded. And to feed off of what Lance was saying about the war and, and this sort of approach to it that was needed, it like really pushes this sort of like respect for soldiers and in, in an interesting way where they they all so you know after the war are are really loving and supporting each other through it seems like a like kind of a difficult time for all of them. But man, fun movie and Danny Kay. He's I've always loved Bing Crosby because I love those Bing Crosby, Bob Hope movies. But Danny Kaye, I think I might like even well, more than Bing Crosby. He's funny awesome. is Bing Crosby's energy levels generally at like a four. <laughs> 
maybe a five. Whereas Danny K, you know, he comes in, he's oh, at nine yeah. or ten. This, so this always reminds me of the the monologue in Christmas Vacation where he's ranting about Bing Crosby dancing with I don't remember that. This is a full-blown four-alarm holiday emergency here. We're going to press on, and we're going to have the hap, hap, happiest Christmas since Bing Crosby tap dance with Danny f***ing K. Uh, one thing that I've always been amused by with musicals is when they just, like in this movie, there's a train sequence, which the song in there is pretty fun. The snow song? Yeah, the snow, yeah, snow, snow song's snow great. Snow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I've always wondered in musicals, like, how do the random people on the train also know the lyrics to the song that the main people are singing do they get like they just get caught before? up in the no they, they get caught up in the moment i guess the lyrics were yeah. basically snow, yeah. snow 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 right they could probably pick it it's up. pretty yeah. simple yeah snow 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 i <laughs> love that motherfucking <laughs> snow it's very inappropriate for the it's time. About, uh, it's also it's about cocaine which is <laughs> it's about their love of cocaine snow 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 snow, snow. It won't be long before we'll all be there with snow. Snow, snow. I want to wash my hands, my face, and hair with snow. All right, Lance, uh, Lynn's first pick. Oh, this one's going to be a fun segment. (laughs) So my mom's first pick was Baby Boom. The 1987 film tells the story of J.C. Wyatt, played by Diane Keaton, a successful New York businesswoman who seems to have it all, but whose life clearly lacks any real human connection. She receives a call one night that a distant cousin has died in an accident and left her an inheritance. The inheritance is not the money she was hoping for, but instead a two-year-old child that she is reluctantly (laughs) forced into raising. Reluctant, I'm not sure, is quite strong enough. I'll get to that. (laughs) Will her unexpected mother teach her about what really matters in life? Probably, yeah. When you're a woman with a full-time career, inheriting a baby is not on your list of priorities. I can't have a baby because I have a 12.30 lunch meeting. Your baby has just barked all over my car. this is not my baby! Diane Keaton stars in Baby Boom. If that plot sounds like the most generic thing you could possibly come up with, it's because it is the most generic <laughs> thing you could possibly come up with. That's a good um, joke. First thing here we have to deal with is the legal aspect of this movie, which is mind-boggling. So the way this baby makes it to, apparently you can just leave a baby to someone in your will, and they yeah. have to they take have it. To take They're em. required to that take it. happens a lot in movies. Like the lady dropping the baby off is like, no, you have to take it. I got to right. yeah. fly to Tampa. I got to go. Yeah, yeah I, got another ba- I got another baby okay, to drop yeah. off. Another go. I, got a, I got a case full of these things. I got to... <laughs> <laughs> I gotta drop off. I don't know if you guys know much about the adoption process. I've, I've, I know people who've been yeah. through it. It's generally it is, it very is, short and painless. It is rigorous, <laughs> to say the least. Costs tens of thousands of dollars. The state is like obsessed about who they place with what, but if it's in a will, doesn't really matter. Do you think it was because the state watched this movie and they're like, oh, it's way too easy. Yeah. <laughs> that like, shouldn't have a baby. Wait, there's a loophole? <laughs> um, the other thing that's funny here is JC sort of just quickly accepts it. It's like, it's like she got a flat tire and she just has to deal with it. It's like, eh, what are you going to do? I got a baby. <laughs> the the way that the men so a lot of this is dealing with what is it like to be a mother in the workplace how much does that hold a woman back so there's a very male versus female aspect to this yeah. movie mm-hmm. and one well, of the things that's hilarious to me is the fact that the men in this movie never seem to have seen a baby before <laughs> they look at it like somebody's brought a wild animal into the office and they, they look at it like Ugh, gross well what her is boss that? is like her boss is like you know I, I get to have it all because my wife you know she does I don't actually I don't even know what she does yeah. right. she takes care of yeah. all of that yeah it's like he and his wife don't 
don't really talk much. And one thing that's funny here too is that the film takes a stance that it's virtually impossible for someone to have kids in a career. And mm-hmm. I, I work in corporate America. Most of the women who have had a baby are doing fine in their career. Yeah. Yeah, it's a pretty dated film. I mean, I'd love to at this point play the opening narration where the movie starts with super 80s music and yeah. then this lady narrator I think it was over. all just pulled out of a stock, a vault of stock <laughs> yeah, 80s footage. beginning movie footage. But the narration's really funny. 53% of the American workforce is female. Three generations of women that turned a thousand years of tradition on its ear. As little girls, they were told to grow up and marry doctors and lawyers. Instead, they grew up and became doctors and lawyers. They moved out of the pink ghetto and into the executive suite. Sociologists say the new working woman is a phenomenon of our time. Take J.C. Wyatt, for example. Graduated first in her class at Yale, got her MBA at Harvard, has a corner office at the corner of 58th and Park. She works five to nine. She makes six figures a year, and they call her the Tiger Lady. Married to her job, she lives with an investment banker married to his. They collect African art, co-own their co-op, and have separate but equal IRA accounts. One would take it for granted that a woman like this has it all. One must never take anything for granted. I can't figure out which gender this movie is more offensive to. <laughs> like it's it <laughs> treats women like they're incapable of doing anything, but it treats men like we have no understanding of how anything in the world works. Yeah. And it treats babies like they're um, babies not actual cute. living uh, things, couples. and you can just carry them yeah. in in whatever haphazard way. Yeah. So so a couple things here. One of the things that's funny about this this particular topic is that while I don't like a movie because my mom likes it, I feel a little defensive of it. So let me say there are a couple things here that I did think that the movie did well. Like first, I thought it had some really funny moments. It's like just first off, watching Diane Keaton try to carry a baby around was was uh, that was hilarious. Well, I don't understand how this movie isn't child abuse to <laughs> I, that to those know, to those actors, well, the, sure, the baby actors. I'm sure, she had a harness or I don't know. But like there were there were there were these little moments where like the baby eats for the first time, makes a total mess. So she's like spraying the baby down with Fantastic. <laughs> yes. It was that, st- that that stuff was hilarious for such an absurd plot line. I like some of the themes it was exploring a little bit, like her kind of shaking off how miserable corporate America has really made her. That was stuff that kind of connected with me. So when you get past the stupid setup there was something of a human story here that well I'm not going to say it was you know Oscar worthy it, it kind of worked well Lily and I had a conversation right before I turned it on she'd never seen it and I'd never seen it we were like I mean is Diane Keaton in bad movies like this is this should be great right why haven't we seen it before it's 87 I mean yes. at the very least Diane Keaton wasn't in anything bad pre-1990 we were wrong. <laughs> so, well, I, part of it too, I like the way they expand the story bit a little bit too, though, because at first it becomes about her, and you know, she's in a miserable relationship. She's which Harold Ramis is is in the film he's briefly, awesome. but he's great in it. He represents the confused male in the movie. Yeah, but you know, it starts with her career dealing with all these men, trying to be a woman in this world. Then the baby, can she be a mother? And then it expands a little bit beyond that, and her starting her own business, finding what makes her happy, leaving New York altogether, moving to Vermont or New Hampshire, mm-hmm. wherever it was she goes. Doing in. I, I felt I felt like they at Dang least they at least there. tried to keep the story moving and kind of going new things. Is this a great movie? Uh, you know, here's what I really can't figure out about this movie. So she's told in the beginning that she can't have it all, and she's not able to do it. She can't be. She, they, I think her nickname at work is the Tiger Lady or the Tiger Woman or something. I mean, she's very good at lawyering. 
<laughs> and then she goes and she moves to Vermont and quits all that. And she starts this baby food company called Country Baby. And it takes off. And how it seems, she's making a ton of money. But she's got this sort of... The movie sort of turns into a funny farm meets uh, the money pit a right, little bit. Right. She lives on like 62 acres in Vermont. And so when it all comes together near the end, uh, this client that she had gotten when she was a lawyer, uh, this group called The Food Chain, which is obviously a conglomerate of food chains i don't i don't yeah, know I guess anyway I they want to buy country baby from her and they want to make her coo and they want to pay her a million dollars a year and they want to buy her a new apartment and you're like hey this is it she can have it all she can make all this money she can keep her place in vermont she can do all this and then she decides to not do it because she says she wants to keep her place in vermont and i'm like they're paying you a million dollars <laughs> you can probably keep the place you in can vermont. do and and they're like so we want to help you distribute we want it to be on every shelf in america she's like that's what i want too and so with it seems like partnering with them she could get it but instead she's going to do it on her own which is going to be more work less time with the baby maybe less I, time I didn't with the baby. i see and, what you're saying i didn't really interpret it that way i interpret it as she suddenly realized she didn't want all of that well like she wanted to stay in vermont because she thought it was what was best for for her child like yes. I, I i got the impression it was saying whether you can or can't have it all you shouldn't necessarily want it all like some of what you wanted doesn't really matter. And to me, the film is about her learning what does and doesn't matter in the list of things that she originally considered wanting at all. This is the it's a meta I guess it's, I know, it's ever been had. About baby food. I guess it was just confusing to me because she still wants it to be this like giant baby food company. She wants it in every grocery store. She's just going to do it herself. So what, what's with our moms in Vermont? I don't know. I don't know. Big fans. Big mom state. The one thing I liked about this movie is basically anything that you think will happen in the movie about someone who doesn't know about babies, that happens. Oh, yeah. Can't put a diaper on? Check. Don't know what to feed the baby and give them something appropriate? Check. (laughs) Can't keep the baby quiet during a meeting? Check. (laughs) Can't keep the baby away from the cocaine stash? (laughs) Check. Yeah, that coke baby scene was awesome. Yeah, I'd really like to hear from Lynn what she loves about this movie. Well, guys, I have a little surprise for you. No, Lynn here? is here. <laughs> <laughs> Your FaceTime her in. She has a uh, she has a life. So. <laughs> As opposed, do you to, think when's yeah, the last time you think son. Lynn has watched Baby Boom? I, I need to ask her that. It's I, probably I, been a while. I think it's probably been a few years. She, she's about thirty-two. I, but I'll tell you, no, just having watched it, I, I think it's still up her it's, alley. It's roughly based on her. I think. Life. It, I, yeah, I think. <laughs> well, no, I mean, it's funny though. Like my mom was was a was a, you know she very educated, very intelligent woman, and she decided to stay home with kids. So I think that this film spoke to her in that way. Like I think it very much represented some of the decisions she made and, yeah. and was kind of validating for her like yeah that's what I wanted and this woman learned to want the things I wanted yeah. so I think there's something yeah. there's kind of a personal thing there yeah. for her it's very similar to my mom's uh, next pick which uh, really is based on her own life a whole lot the 2002 swashbuckler The Count of Monte Cristo mm-hmm. Segway uh, a mostly f- <laughs> pretty good segue that was good. A mostly forgotten adaptation of the classic novel directed by Kevin Reynolds, who mostly made a career out of directing Kevin Costner <laughs> with Waterworld, Fandango, and Robin Hood under his belt. But this one stars Jim Caviezel as Edward Dante's. I'm sorry, who? Jim Caviezel? Caviezel? Yeah, that's Caviezel. Sorry, that's I, I don't know. I just don't know who he is. Uh, <laughs> as Edmund Dante is an honest seller, uh, sailor who plans to marry his beautiful lover, Mercedes. Gosh. Edmund. He is so dumb at the beginning of this movie. Well, yeah, he hasn't been educated He's yet. He's honest, yeah. Edmund doesn't know what his best friend, Fernand, 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 uh, secretly desires Mercedes for himself and schemes with fallen aristocrat Villefort to frame Edmund for a crime he didn't commit. Sentenced to life on the remote island prison, uh, Edmund becomes consumed by plans for revenge. 13 years pass and he meets a fellow innocent convict played by Richard Harris, who becomes Edmund's mentor in sword fighting, finance, and escape. 
confiding that the vast treasure awaits a discovery on the island of Monte Cristo. Eventually, Edmund is able to get away using tunnels and makes his way to Monte Cristo, where he retrieves the fortune and uses it to make himself over as a wealthy Count of Monte Cristo. And with the help of loyal sidekick, Edmund insinuates himself into French royalty and sets about getting revenge on Villefort and Fernand, who is now married to Mercedes. Mm-hmm. See, I didn't write that. I cut and pasted it, honestly, from something, and I had a hard time getting through that. But You didn't have to write it. You just needed to be able to read it. <laughs> That's seems to be the real problem here. I'm great at writing. It's the reading part. It's rough. I think there are two reasons my mom loves this film. One, it stars every Christian's favorite actor, Jem Caviezel. And two, this is classic storytelling. That, that explains that, I think. <laughs> this is classic storytelling on a large scale. Good and evil are clearly defined. It's got humor and romance and sword fighting and everything great action adventure flicks are all about. Uh, and I think much like myself, my mom likes her escapism with a little bit of depth. I'm going to give you a third reason. This movie yeah. is wonderful. Ooh. I think this movie is fantastic. Huh. Well, you're all nuts then. This hmm. movie is... and This you, movie to me is just... It doesn't know what it is. There's so many tones. You've got Guy Pierce playing it at level 150. Then Caviezel is at like a one. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what any of that means. Really into, into um, <laughs> yeah, quantifying in everything so. today. This movie, though, you know, you, you mentioned something at the beginning. You said I've forgotten, I think. Yeah, I, nobody it talks about baffles it. baffles me why this movie is forgotten. I, I've never, well, until today at least, I had never talked to anybody who didn't love it. The book is one of my favorite books. I read it, actually read it after I'd seen the movie, and I thought this was a very worthy adaptation that strips the story down to its severe bones, which is basically a revenge story. Yeah. Maybe the best revenge story ever told wow, it's fantastic man. wow now, i don't mean the movie per se i just mean the story, the story of it itself. is wonderful okay. it's one of those rare situations i think too where the book actually found ways to improve upon the movie because in the book the protagonist and antagonist weren't close friends um that was actually added for the uh for the script hmm. and that really to me drives um drives it and makes it work one of my favorite facts about this movie is that arnold schwarzenegger turned down the role of edmund dante's <laughs> So some producer, I guess, he would really know who. Jim Caviezel. Yeah, that would have been weird. <sighs> okay, all right, Jimmy, you take your little shots. Go for it. Yeah. He's terrible. So I'm gonna do, I'm gonna do a <laughs> quick. I'm gonna do a quick. <laughs> That's my shot. <laughs> I'm gonna do a quick Rebert wrap up here. So he did a great job, kind of wrapping up this movie in his review. He said, "The Count of Monte Cristo is a movie that incorporates piracy, Napoleon in exile, betrayal, solitary confinement, secret messages, escape tunnel, swashbuckling, comic relief, a treasure map, Parisian high society, and sweet revenge, and brings it in at under two hours. There's a lot of movie in here." Mm-hmm. There really um, is. With performances by good actors who are clearly having fun. This is a kind of adventure picture. The studios turned out in the golden age. So traditional, it almost feels new. That's a good call. It does have a kind of an old Hollywood feel to it. Which and I that think might that's have why been it didn't connect at me. the time. The yeah, movies maybe. that were coming out were much more modern and kind of forward thinking. I enjoyed this so much more than I expected to. Hmm. I was so mad about watching this movie. And then I actually had a lot of fun watching it. Let me Especially the Chateau, Chateau Diff. Yep. I think that's... Man, those scenes are awesome. Mm-hmm. I could have watched the whole movie in there. Which one, Chateau Diff? I mean, I wouldn't want to watch the movie in there. I could have. I would have enjoyed <laughs> you the whole movie the taking film. place. In there. Right, you wouldn't want to set up a projector there. Right. Got it. Let me be clear. I didn't hate this movie. I think it was oh, actually. Here comes the backtrack. Yeah. Here comes the backtrack. <laughs> now that everybody else likes it, I, I think the first thirty minutes are really terrible, though. And then, but once Richard Harris arrives, and then the tone starts kind of coming into a little bit more focus to me. Uh, it's. I think it's a pretty campy film. And I think that they played up in the last. Certainly, Guy Pearce is playing it totally different than everybody else. Which I loved him in this movie. He's good. Yeah. He's good. Take your vengeance. But know the blood you spill is noble. Blood that will never run through your veins. You're no more a count than I am a commoner! 
Good pick, Susan. Great pick, Susan. Thanks, Susan. Lots I mean, of, mom. Lots of sexy men in this one. <laughs> oh, there's a theme. She does love her sexy. <laughs> Wait, what men. was her first movie? Secondhand Lions. Oh yeah, all sexy the, older all the men. Sex, yeah. All the sex, drugs, and rock and roll in that. Oh, one. Uh, this film, Young Henry Cavill. That's right. Yeah, yeah. pre-Superman. It was funny seeing him yeah. show up. Yeah, don't know who that is. But Playing great. a sixteen-year-old at age like twenty-five. Henry Cavill played Superman in the recent DC movies. Ah, uh, soups. Henry Cavill's awesome. I thought that was Ben Affleck. That's Batman. What's Barbie got going for us next? Oh, Barb. Not Barb. <laughs> no, she's known as Barbie, Jordan. We can clear about Barbara. that. Mom's number two pick is one of the zaniest, mind-bogglingest, f***ing insane movies ever made. <laughs> Her words, not yours. <laughs> really, my mom is just about the normalest, squarest, center-of-the-road person you've ever met. But then you dig into her favorite movies, and she is a genuine weirdo. A real spitfire. Oh, man. So oh, she's a tomcat, man. <laughs> her number two pick is one she saw in a drive-in theater at the age of six. It's three. Jeez. It's a, it's a three-and-a-half-hour-long <laughs> comedy from 1963, directed by a guy who had, up to that point, only made very serious movies about wars, nuclear holocaust, and the actual holocaust. It's called... It's a mad, 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 mad world, and it is utterly bonkers. Basically, it's about every living comedian, funny or not, all racing each other across the country to find a hidden stash of cash for three and a half hours. Although most available versions now are somewhat shorter. It starts with three minutes of blank black screen <laughs> with music. I'm pretty sure I texted you whilst watching this movie. I was like, does it ever begin? <laughs> well, then after that three minutes of black, it has five more minutes of overture with credits that yes. you can see. It's a So it takes eight minutes for this movie to even start, but... Uh, it takes eight minutes to say the name of the movie. <laughs> but after that, it wastes no time. Uh, and it pretty quickly makes a joke as that uh, I think acts as a barometer for how you'll feel about the rest of the movie. So this group of motorists find a dying guy who careened off the road, and uh, he tells them about all this money that he hid. Look, there's this dosey. There's all this dough. 350 Gs. Do you hear what I'm saying? 350 G's in the park in Rosita. Rosita, big state park, just south of Dago in Santa Rosita. It's in this box, buried under this... <coughs> buried under this big W. You can't miss it. And then he... He literally kicks a bucket. That that scene is so great. Like the and it really sets the tone for everything. The yeah. unbridled greed that takes over as they're talking to him. Oh, yes. The fact he literally kicks a bucket. Like <laughs> And it, we just watch that bucket bounce down. And then we watch them <laughs> watching the bucket bounce down. It's fantastic. Oh, I love it. But if you like that kind of joke, I think it means that you're going to like the movie. And if you don't like that kind of joke, you're going to hate the next three and a half hours of your right. life. So why does my mom love it? Hilarious. So funny and silly. I was a very silly little girl, which is why my dad said 
that he didn't have to worry about a boy kissing me because I would never stop giggling long enough. The storyline was so crazy and characters made me laugh and the fun of the buried treasure and who would find it. Turns out I love this movie too. It's basically a movie about greed, trust, and base humanity told through copious amounts of destruction to property. And uh, it's right up my alley. Based on the kicking the bucket joke, it sounds like it's a dad, 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 dad joke. <laughs> Doesn't play that way though. I, I, no. So my first my first note on this movie was just something you said. I said this movie is nuts. Period. <laughs> so many so many no storylines. No, yeah. I mean, I, I got it since yeah, I wrote sure. it. Um, so many storylines. So many characters. The way it holds everything together and keeps you engaged is really impressive and yeah. rare. I, it feels like one of the only films I've ever seen I could call a comedy epic. Yeah, um, I think the only other one I can think of is Meet Joe Black. Oh, shut shut up. <laughs> Go back to episode whatever it was. Whatever. Um, which episode was that? Was that Jimmy? Was you crying one? No. I don't, I don't cry. Underrated. Funniest, funniest Underrated. movie. Underrated. Ir- irrelevant. Underrated. That's what it was. But it's a fun merging of genres that we rarely, if ever, get to see because it's so hard to pull off. This movie, to me, I think one reason I really liked it was it's kind of a document of old Hollywood mm-hmm. in the way that all these classic film stars sort of came out together for one last hurrah a little bit. So if you're in any way a fan of the history of classic Hollywood, this film holds a lot of meaning and inside jokes and little Easter eggs that you know, someone who isn't would probably miss. I think it literally has like every living comedian yeah. at that time. Mm-hmm. Don Knotts in it. And I read that he was just 38 or 39, but man, he looked about 60. Well, he always looks 60. <laughs> yeah. People look a lot older. But you've got, time. you know, Buster Keaton, the three stooges mm-hmm. come out for once. I mean, it's, and it's just, they don't have lines even. Right. It's just, everybody just wanted to be in this movie. It's like, everybody just kind of, the whole town came together. Just like, yeah, let's make this. Uh-huh. This will be fun. There's one scene in the beginning where they're talking about working out the shares mm-hmm. of the thing. Mm-hmm. That made me laugh. That oh, was pretty man. funny. Let's see now. As I understand it, I got one share for being one person, one share for going down the hill, one share for the truck, and one share for being a person in the truck. But no matter how you figure it out, I still don't get as much as anybody else. Look, let me explain it once more. You see, they're their group. They, those three of them, they, they get 112,000, right? Those over there, them, they get 97,000. We, we, us, we get 84,000. And you, by yourself, you get $56,000 alone. And that's tax-free money. What do you mean, tax-free? Well, I mean, uh, if we go down the, to this park and we uncover the money and we uh, have it, I mean, I'm sure he's not going to declare anything. I know, I know he's not going to declare anything. And I'm not going to, you know, declare What are you talking about, declare it? Well, I mean, uh, it's, it's like a non-taxable income. It's like a, like, a, like a gift. But sure, if we find the money, we still have to report the taxes. Otherwise, it's like stealing from the government. And that's kind of how I am when I uh, haggle with scalpers. <laughs> you haggle with a lot of scalpers. Yes. I usually get taken. There's one point I paid guy $15 more than what he was asking for. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I feel like that happened renting this Airbnb. <laughs> yeah. I actually fell asleep at one point during this movie, which is pretty impressive because it's a loud movie. Was it the opening? Mm, I don't remember what it was. But, you know, I, I liked it all right, but there's some movies that you watch and you don't want them to end. Uh, this was not one of those movies <laughs> <laughs> for me. <laughs> uh, it certainly runs its course. It does. The, the you feel thing. the length of it, Hayao. Um, <laughs> but you really do. I mean, you get done when you feel like you've watched a three and a half hour oh, long yeah. movie for sure. I think it acts as a as a blueprint for some other movies that we've talked about and and that we love, like Airplane. I think it also acts as a blueprint for like Gremlins Two, where it's just yeah. like it's just wall to wall. 
the entire time. It just doesn't, you, you have no room to, it's just an insane movie. I don't even understand how it, uh, it how really it exists. Is. It really is. Do you know much about, who, who directed this? I don't remember Sorry, putting you on the spot. Because I, I'm wondering who this director was and how he had the ability to pull all of this together. It was Stanley Kramer. Oh, well. Okay. Yeah. Now that makes sense. Never mind. He'd made some some big movies, yeah. but nothing Judgment. funny. He did uh, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, in fact. He yes, after this. Yeah. Like three years after this. Oh. Uh, or four years. Um, did he do uh, Kramer versus Kramer? It's about his own life. Guess Who's Coming to Stanley Kramer. <laughs> Inherit the Wind, Judgment, Sometimes they just don't hit, do they? <laughs> <laughs> I'm fine with that. I'm good. Yeah, I mean, he'd done, he'd done big movies that were very serious, and I think he just wanted to do something funny. So he's like, I'm only going to do this once. I'll put every joke in there. <laughs> <laughs> What's the story? Did you read up that. on it as to why there's like so many different versions? Because I'd read a little bit of trivia, and the three-hour, 25-minute version is, was only played a few times. Right? You mean there's different cuts of it? Yeah. yeah really? The, like, yeah, I saw three and a half. I saw the, the two hour and like thirty minute. Version. Yeah, the current, the sort of current version is two and a half hours. There's a Criterion version that's slightly different. I don't know what the story is. I kind of think that some of it's just gone. They had to cut all the racism out of it. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> He's back. <laughs> I think that the three and a half hour version doesn't exist. I don't think that you can you can watch it. Which one did you watch? Uh, whatever the longest one was. Mm. I don't I think remember. it's like yeah. two hours and 32 yeah. minutes. Yeah, yeah. Okay, it is very long. long. The version that I saw, I don't remember Buster Keaton or Three Stooges showing up in it. That might have been when you fell asleep. could have been when I fell asleep. Yeah. <laughs> so. These, those scenes were literally like a few seconds. Oh, yeah. Oh, there they are. And then yeah. That was it. I mean, like Jerry Lewis is in there for like 12 seconds. Peter Falk's in there. Oh, wow. Yeah. Gibby, what's uh, Kim's next pick there? Kim's next pick comes in under the three-hour and 25-minute mark of Jordan's mom's last pick, <laughs> but just barely. <laughs> it continues the musical theme of her last one, and this is the winner of five Academy Awards, including Best Picture, the 1965 Julie Andrews hit, The Sound of Music. Our hills are alive with the sound of music. have sung for a thousand years. So The Sound of Music is about the Von Trapp family in Austria. A group of six or seven or eight kids, I don't know. One billion. With a widow of father <laughs> and their search to find a nanny who can both tolerate them and is cute enough to win dad's cold, almost dead heart. Lo and behold, they find that same nanny in Julie Andrews Maria. She's a nun who wasn't a very good nun. Leaves the Terrible covenant. Terrible nun. Yep. One she, of the worst. She wasn't good. In fact, they set her to go. And that's when she went and become these kids' governess. Yeah. Which, surprisingly, is she not... She followed a, none of the rules. <laughs> <laughs> surprisingly, a Bad governess habits. is not a lady governor, <laughs> like I thought it would be. But it's, in fact, someone who just teaches the kids manners and songs and dancing. She's good at that. Anyway, the first half of the movie... <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I didn't take anything from the fact you just said. <laughs> what did you learn about governesses? <laughs> governess is not a lady governor. <laughs> oh, okay. It was a joke. Yeah. yeah. I mean, why I she gives it. some advice yeah. and she, um, she governs some kids. Yeah. Well, she keeps them from like being scared in a thunderstorm. And She's good. She, she, she softens Christopher Plummer's cold, sure. dead heart. Cold, dead heart. Softens my heart. So the uh, the first half of this I movie, sure, I'm sure we've all seen it, although I haven't before this. <laughs> it would make no sense from any angle. Sorry, keep going. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
not even one paragraph into my thing. <laughs> and yet you've said the title already. I'm impressed. Usually it's 10 minutes before we hear the title of the movie. All right, keep going. So the first half of this movie is about her getting to know these kids and singing, and then getting to know the handsome Captain Von Trapp, played by a wonderful Christopher Plummer, He's and then marrying boat. him, and then a surprising twist. They hide from Nazis. So that's the sound of music. Uh, I was glad Kim had picked this movie because it was another classic that I had not ever seen all the way through. I ever had really? seen, yeah. The f- I've only seen like the first, the last forty-five minutes oh, of the movie. Man. What? Yeah, when <laughs> Easter, Thanksgiving, whatever holiday it is, the ABC shows that movie. But I'd never seen the whole movie, and now I have, and I liked it. Way to go! Yep, it's surprisingly and disarmingly funny. I was, I laughed quite a bit during the movie. She's super charming. The kids aren't annoying, and Dad Gum is that Christopher Plamy? Christopher. <laughs> <laughs> Christopher Plummy? Yeah, Christopher Plummy. He is a plum. Well, somebody, He's super somebody handsome. point that mic closer. <laughs> there we go. Should be I'm pointed amazing. out between the last <laughs> segment and this. He's doing a great job yeah. of, of talking. Toward, it's just a, sort it's of a mic it, problem, not a Gibby it's problem. Always, okay, uh, thank you. No, it's between slow. the last segment and this one, three of us started drinking. <laughs> Gibby was not one of them. <laughs> Uh, Christopher Plummer, he's good. <laughs> there's a song. <laughs> he is. I actually was surprised, but towards the end of this movie, there's a song where he joins in to sing with the group, and it's kind of a lump in the throat moment. Oh, I God, get a little I, I well, feel more to, than a lump in the throat. Well, I to, cry. To review, I mean, th- this is about the return of music into this home. So Christopher mm-hmm. Plummer's wife had passed away years earlier. This was a house that was like this before. Mm-hmm. So it's very much about the return and what she brings that joy back into his house. So when he sings, it's not like he's learning to be happy. He's relearning to be happy. Yeah. And allowing himself to be. Right, exactly. But this is, it was good. And, and, you know, I was surprised that I got choked up at it because it's a movie from the 60s and they're usually really dumb. Why don't you shut up? <laughs> the, the last, what I was surprised by this too is the last 34 minutes are pretty intense. Oh, yeah. Super pretty intense. Pretty good. Chasing. Yeah. You often hear people say this cliche thing, like they don't make them like this anymore. And I don't really agree with the notion that movies are better now or then. I think it's just a filtering process that happens. But I would say that saying is pretty true of Sound of Music. This was a time when the big budget musical was at its peak. And Sound of Music is the crown jewel of that era. Musicals have made kind of a comeback in the past decade or so, but have never gotten back to where they were at this time in terms of scale and size and scope. Sound of Music is a film that is just so unabashedly joyous and owns what it is in such a delightful way. I revisit this movie probably once every five to ten years. And every time I do, I'm drawn to a new part of it that I either didn't notice or just wasn't old enough to understand or, you know, whatever the reason as a kid you're into the singing and dancing and how much fun the kids are having and you're really focused on the kids and then as the you... nazis i like the nazis see i wasn't kid. when i was a kid i was not even paying attention to that. jordan was oh. big in the nazis i liked yeah. nazis even more when i was a kid than i do now <laughs> really so well, it... you have that swastika tattoo <laughs> i most definitely do not <laughs> at any rate as you get older you realize how catchy the songs are you start to see more of the human elements with the love story and then the last time i watched it i'd really forgotten and in fairness this was a while ago since i last saw it, but i'd forgotten about the whole nazi plot line and the fact that oh, wow. this whole story is happening up against a larger world event that plays out how how the film ends and that made it even more interesting i always forget how good these songs are it's yeah, like every they're, yeah, they're, song all, they're all really so good except for that climb every mountain song which is pretty well, dog awful that song's great oh, it's, no. uh, so I, I, I agree with both of you. I wanted to climb over my pillows to grab the remote to fast forward it. How many pillows did you climb climb Like three pillows. Every mountain. <laughs> um, anyway, wonderful film. One of my all-time favorites. It has new dimensions with every viewing, and that's just a rare thing. For and a and, and in, terms of, in terms of a hit, this is the number three highest-grossing film adjusted for inflation, only after Gone with the Wind and Star is Wars. that right? Wow. Number three, really? Adjust, the adjusted gross would be $1.2 billion domestically. 
billion dollars. I never think of this movie when people say, Jordan, what are your favorite movies? I never think of this movie, but every time I watch it, it's in my top five favorite yeah. movies. I mean, yeah, th- this great. movie is, is perfect. It's wonderful. It's, yeah. it's untouchable. It somehow has something for everyone, mm-hmm. but also feels cohesive. Like, I don't understand how that's possible. That's a, that's a great point. It balances everything really it's well. It's crazy. I am uh, deeply in love with Julie Andrews. Yeah, she's phenomenal. She's great. Something about musicals that I don't always love is like I feel like the acting or the the emotional resonance or the like connection to characters is hurt by the songs and the dancing and the singing and all yeah. of that super unrealistic thing. And somehow the characters in this and the performances and the the like it doesn't it's not hurt by any of that. It, somehow it, they're able to act in these songs. It, that it's amazing. I, I think what it, it, you're, that's a great point. It oftentimes musicals stop. And then they do a, a number, and then they go back to the story. Right. The songs in this are an expression of what's already happening in the story. Mm-hmm. So right. it's very organic, very beautifully in a row woven. It's just, it's just very, it's different. I it think that's here. why I like this musical a lot better than White Christmas because White Christmas, when they did the songs or the dances, it kind of stopped the plot. It's like okay. yeah, I mean, I, I think and this those, one they all kind of advance it. I love White Christmas, but these two movies are on. Like yeah, vastly different, different levels. I mean, they're they're just yeah, totally and, and, and they were meant to be different things. Yeah, it's yeah. Like they were trying to make the same movie. Uh, so this uh, this movie is just quick, uh, quick little fun tidbit that uh, Julie Andrews had had finished filming Mary Poppins, but that that movie had not been released. So on set, she would entertain the kids by singing super califragilisticexpialidocious. Really? Huh. Yeah. And the kids thought she made up the song because the movie had not <laughs> been released. Yet. There's about 820 trivia on this movie. They're they're um, all pretty oh, good. Yeah, yeah, they're all pretty. There's a couple of fun facts. The girl that played Liesel, Speaking of 16 going on 17, more like. <laughs> Sixteen going on forty-two, but uh, she was actually twenty-one at the time and was attracted to Christopher Plummer. He's he beautiful. later admitted, weren't, weren't we all? He later admitted that the feeling was mutual, <gasps> oh, but he never acted upon okay, it. Gibby, okay, Gibby, you know what? I don't believe. He? I don't believe that Way Chris Plummer. He's like thirty-five. Oh, jeez. Okay. Yeah, he wasn't that old. Yeah. yeah. But at that at that point, what year is this movie? This was sixty-five. Phil four was when they're filming. Okay. It. I mean, it was st- that sort of age gap was still. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of it's like Hudson and his wife right now. I mean, I wonder what the ages are. Supposed to be in this movie. Wow. The only person who didn't react to 35 that and 20. I didn't hear the joke. Okay. <laughs> better off for that. Good job, Gibby, sliding that yeah. one into the radar. Uh, like, how old is, is Julie Andrews' character supposed to be in this? That's a good question. And and how old is Christopher Palmer? I mean, yeah. he, it's probably about that. Julie Andrews that is pretty young. She's like True. 30 or yeah. under 30. I like that there's a song in here literally called The Sound of Music. And, you know, I wish more movies would do that have songs in them that reference the title of the movie. Can you, you imagine like how much better Crash would have been if Brendan Fraser or Don Cheadle had broken into Crash into me during the movie? I can't believe I wrote that out <laughs> and actually said it. Well, you, you, it, was, it was a multi-step process. You <laughs> thought it. Then you thought it was a good idea to write it. Then you thought it was a good idea to say it. You had so many gates where you could have stopped that. Yep. And yet here we are. Uh, something interesting about the songs in this movie is that they sing almost all of them twice, which I had, I'd never realized oh, until this viewing of it. And I don't know if that's a thing that, that musicals a usually do, but they really do like full versions of, of, like, of reprisals all of, them, of like, a twice. couple of the songs. Mm. You'd think they do it more often because you establish a connection with an mm-hmm. audience the first yeah. time and then you can pay it off and play with expectations. Hmm. Uh, We should write a musical. So reading also through the trimmer, back to trivia, back to Christopher Plummer, he seems like a real gem of a guy. In the clothing shot, when the family's climbing over the hills to safety, it's not really the actress that plays Gretel on his shoulders. Uh, It's revealed that, well, in Austria, the actress gained a lot of weight, the little kid. So this is one of the last shots films, and she was evidently a little too heavy to be carried in Christopher Plummer's back. 
So he requested a tiny stunt double. Oh no! To be put on his back. He also admitted that what he found, wimp. yeah, he found Julie Andrews insufferable and annoying during filming. What? Referring to her as Mrs. Disney to the other cast and crew members. Later, what he admitted to being immature in his feelings, and Julie Andrews was a great actress and beloved her like a true professional and they're good friends. But he seemed like a true jerk during the wow. filming of this movie. Mm. So that makes me think there's no way he didn't hook up with Liesel. <laughs> God, jeez. <laughs> Um, <laughs> that was impressive. No, you, we, you we're ahead. both speechless after Gibby's <laughs> terrifying, horrible facts. Also, uh, it was uh, said that uh, Christopher Plummer had sexual fantasies about many of the <laughs> cattle in the scene. Oh, oh God. Uh, I just want to, if you're listening to this podcast and you're like, oh, sound of music, like, cool, these guys like it, whatever. Yeah. This movie is pleasing and artful on so many levels. The shots, like, if, if you're like, oh, I don't like musicals, oh, I don't care about happy governess movies, oh, I don't care about Nazis, like, just visually, this movie is stunning. Yeah, There's so many film. interesting, crazy, weird, like, almost experimental shots in this. Like, it, it is... Well, it starts off with that huge sweeping shot of her running up the mountains. Well, awesome and but the, the shots in like the nunnery and all those those like is that what you is that what a convent's called uh, a nunnery? i think it's called a convent oh, <laughs> oh. is that what a convent's called a nunnery <laughs> uh you're you're right george this is an easy movie to dismiss and you really if you dismiss it are missing out on something absolutely wonderful. right you know the gazebo scene where maria and the captain kiss it was supposed to be like supposed to originally be very well lit and uh they're in the gazebo but she kept laughing during the filming because the light, light fixture kept making a funny noise. So they ended up just shooting it in a silhouette. And that was like a pretty he's famous like, shot. Oh, he's like, can we get Liesel in here to do yeah. the body double? <laughs> oh, God. One thing that's funny about this, too, is that he's the head of the Navy for Austria, which is landlocked. <laughs> so, that's why he's gone so much. He's know. really got to travel. I, I, may have, I may have missed this. How did he get all his money? Did the Austrian... Can't we pay that well? He seems I pretty loaded. I, I mean, he's the oh, head of it. So. To Lynn, Lynn's second pick. So the next film my mom picked was You've Got Mail, the 1998 Nora Ephron film that tells the story of two business rivals in the book industry. Joe Fox, played by the underrated Tom Hanks. F-O-X. Oh, yeah. an old joke from an old episode. Who works for the large Fox Books, a Barnes & Noble type corporation. And Kathleen Kelly, played by Meg Ryan, who plays the small shop owner of children's books. Joe's company is in the business of starting giant corporate locations that run small bookstores like Kathleen's out of business. While they hate each other in real life, they unknowingly become chatroom friends online and accidentally start to fall in love. Whoops. Whoops. You Got Mail was one of the signature romantic comedies of the 90s, which, along with Sleepless in Seattle, made Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan one of those Hollywood couples. Woo. Despite only being in three films Get together. Hot under the collar just thinking about this, too. I know. You do. I, know. <laughs> I was like, Hudson's going to have so many notes on this. They had a chemistry that audiences loved, and honestly, it's surprising they didn't do more films together. The film is a remake of a Jimmy Stewart film, Shop Around the Corner, from 1940. I've seen it. Yeah. Yeah, cool. Yeah, was it, was it just on TV one day? Got mm-hmm. some I recorded it on some Turner on Classic Movie. Uh, it's well worth a watch. It's a little bit slower than this one, but uh, and it's quite a bit more misogynistic than <laughs> than the 1998 You've uh, Got Mail. I hate that whore from the shop around the corner. <laughs> 
Yeah, he said Sorry. that. I can't get my internet to work. Oh, oh what's weird? What's weird about shop around the corner <laughs> is that. Uh, also, what's internet? <laughs> They they actually work together at the same shop in shop cool. around the corner. Yep. In fact, the name you don't like my Jimmy Stewart impression. It's <laughs> <laughs> all like James Cagney. <laughs> See. <laughs> in fact, the name of Meg Ryan's store is called Shop Around the Corner. It's a nod to the original. Since you've got mail was made right when the internet was on the rise, it was a natural and timely decision to change the letter writing, which would have made no sense. <laughs> corresponding on chat rooms. So the movie is a little dated. They're using AOL to get online. I kept wanting there to be this like 10 minute scene where it just shows them getting on the internet, like putting the disc in, hearing all the like. <laughs> what makes the film work is watching these people communicate on two different levels. They meet in real life and hate each other, but their banter online is completely different. And as viewers, it's really fun being in on the secret as they keep barely missing each other, barely discovering the truth we already know. We know what's going to happen the entire movie. There's no big surprise here but this is a film that somehow slides right into cliche and it still just works and that's yeah. so impressive when a film can pull that off and th there was a purity to this movie I really liked and while it's not my kind of film per se and it's probably my least favorite genre it does what it sets out to do extremely well and I had to admire that it was kind of a movie that made me wish I was a little little less cynical at times there is something about Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan that they're both so natural on screen in, in everything that they do but having them together like it works in a way that when you watch romantic comedies today that are I don't know Catherine Heiger like there's just they're not real people you know what I mean so, and there's something about Hanks and, and, and Meg Ryan who are just so naturally yeah. that yeah. and you just so pull for them and connect with them because of it say that but that and Tom Hanks is fantastic in this movie and Meg Ryan like I love her and could she's anybody great. have done this Role as well as Tom Hanks, do you think, Gibby? Antonio Banderas. <laughs> I don't know if that's, that's weird. Yeah. Billy Crystal. Yeah, I'm Schwarzenegger. Billy Crystal. Yeah, Billy uh, Crystal could have. Meg Ryan's great too, but there's some parts of this where certainly where she's in scenes by herself where she gets super cutesy, Meg Ryan. Yeah, that's awesome. That stuff drives me crazy. She is cute. She just is cute. Like where she's just all like walking around. There's that scene where she's boxing. Yeah, like that. I love that stuff. That stuff kind of drives me. So charming. And it's not just them two. You look at all these, like, um, one Somebody, of the... Th who woke up Hudson? <laughs> no, he is excited. Is, is Louis weird. Iguana? <laughs> Let's keep our face on the mic, please, Hudson. You're all over the place right now. Jeez. The visual is really good for the podcast. <laughs> but it's the whole... Also, I should say that um, both Sound of Music and You've Got Mail are two of my wife's favorite movies. And so You've Got Mail is probably the movie... Well, it's definitely the movie that her and I have watched the most together. Mm -hmm. It's the movie that she's watched the most on her own. So I'm very familiar with this film. But the supporting cast is fantastic. Yeah, oh, Steve's yeah. on. Yeah, Steve's on. Um, Greg Kinnear. The guy with uh, also uh, his buddy... Oh, Dave Chappelle? Dave Chappelle. Everybody's great in this. His dad, his grand, yeah. everybody um, like really kind of has that natural feel to them, which I think is, um, I'm not sure how much we've talked about Nora Ephron on this show, Some. but gosh, what a master of this genre. She nails this. That she pulls it off in a way that nobody else can. Yep. Mm -hmm. um, I, this is a movie that also proves it is absolutely impossible not to like, like Tom Hanks. So let's review yeah. what he does in this movie. <laughs> He runs a woman out of business and destroys not only her career, but this store that's been in her family for years. It establishes he's not only done this to many other people, but he kind of takes pleasure in it. He's cheating on his girlfriend online, and he basically <laughs> psych psychologically toys with Meg Ryan the entire second half of the movie. And despite all this, we never don't like him. Oh, you love him. Yeah, he's, there's certain scenes where he's really, really like legit funny in this movie. There's, scene, there's a montage at the beginning where he's around with his little brother and his... Like niece or something, and that super his, like Tom Hanks his, is awesome. His the montage. uncle, yeah, and his 
sister. Uncle and little sister. Uster, uncle yeah. and sister, but they're yeah. both younger than him. Yeah, and yeah, he's yeah. so perfect yeah. in that. I mean, that, when you see that, you're like, oh, this is Tom Hanks. He is, he's underrated, but he's probably <laughs> the best actor of our generation. <laughs> so, uh, there's one part also where he gets excited, like right before the scene where they meet him in the coffee shop and they're meeting, he's talking to Dave Chappelle, and Tom Hanks gets all excited. Like, all I hear is Woody. She's very pretty. She is! I knew she would be! She had to be! I know I kept going into like oh, that is just, I'm watching Toy Story over and over yeah. again. Rom coms kind of hinge, or they hinge on a couple things. One being that the characters are likable, which this one obviously pulls off, despite how terrible Tom Hanks is. Not Tom Hanks, the character. Okay, yes, yeah. you watch. Want to make sure that I got that <laughs> uh, straight to draw blood. But the other thing that that they hinge on is that moment when they finally come together, mm-hmm. the, the the emotional yeah. climax of the movie. This is the only of these 12 movies that I didn't revisit for this episode because I saw this in high school with a group of girls at my friend Sarah's house. And for some reason, about halfway through the movie, all of the girls that I was hanging out with left and went and did something else. And I'm just alone in Sarah's bedroom (laughs) watching this movie for the first time. We get to that scene and we see Meg Ryan waiting. And then we see Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan's crying and I'm crying, (laughs) and then Tom Hanks comes up, and he says, don't cry, and we're both crying even harder (laughs) than we were crying, and then the dog comes up, and the dog's crying, and then we're crying more. And and you had Meg Ryan's haircut at that time, so. (laughs) (laughs) It's so simple. Yep. Like, a lot of times I feel like rom-coms, it's it's this, like, complicated thing, or, like, and this one is so simple and so effective that, you know, 17-year-old me was just in a puddle. And and really, this is a movie... That's just conversation between two people. That's the whole movie, pretty mm-hmm, much. Mm-hmm. And, it, and for that to still work really shows the power of Nora Ephron's dialogue and the yeah. power of these actors being able to, yeah. to bring but, those characters And to the life. power of Harry Nilsson's Over the Rainbow is also... That's true. But it's I think, track. and you're right, that when I revisited this a week or two ago, and I remember the last time I'd seen it was in the theater. Mm. And it, it was... I remember that last scene. That was the one scene so I remember great. because it worked so well. Yeah. And she's crying. She's saying, I, I wanted it to be you. I it was you. The reason it works with such a simple ending is that it's been teasing it. We've known this was coming. We've wanted this moment so bad. We didn't need a big elaborate one chasing the other to the airport. Right. We just needed to see it happen in a way that didn't suck. Mm-hmm. And so the power of that ending is not about what's happening in that scene. It's about what's happened for the previous you know hour and a half yeah. that's laid the groundwork for them to do. They could have done a lot of stuff with that, and I think it would have worked. But what they chose was fantastic. So this is definitely one of my favorite rom-coms and one of my least favorite opening credits for a movie. <laughs> yeah. There's so many credits, like graphics. really bad uh, yeah. computer graphics where they're CGI, going through yeah. New yeah. York, and it's playing this terrible, it might be Randy Newman, I don't know who it is, but it's this terrible song don't don't ever, it, don't ever say sets, that Randy Newman is terrible again. I don't think it is. It just sets the total worst tone for what this movie is going to be. And I'm not sure why they, like, I guess well, they're trying to do something digital. No, it's, the, I mean, it's, it's I think it's obvious why they did it. Does it work? I mean, not now, not so much. Yeah. I mean, at the time, it, it was what it was. I mean, again, that's the thing about this movie being dated. The technology doesn't look the same anymore. That's just part of it. Dreams are nothing more than wishes and a wish is just a dream you wish to come true. So which is better, this or the net? This. It being t- timeless? Yeah, I, 
<laughs> I think one thing I really like about this movie is that it avoids a lot of the cliches that, I mean, it's, it's pretty cliche-filled, but a lot of the cliches of romantic comedy is there's always a miscommunication that could be easily solved by one comment between one person and the other. Mm. And this one doesn't have that. I mean, he's he's got the upper hand, I guess, because he knows. Yeah, he's a creeper. But, it, well, here, but here's a question. Why do you think he draws it out like that? Do you think he's trying to... He's trying to get her you, to just fall in love with him. Is that him. what he's doing? Do you think it's all very intentional, what he's doing the whole time? Yeah, Does he know how remember. he feels? I'm just curious. I, I don't think know. he knows how he feels, because he fell in love with her before that scene. So should but should we be happy for it's them pretty, to be together? Like, do we want really her to be with him? What he's doing? We do because because of that choice that he made. I would love to see a remake of this where you you get somebody really creepy in that role and see <laughs> if it plays like a thriller or something. You know, you could probably rec- one, recut one of those trailers like yeah. they did. Yeah, the choice that he makes of basically, I don't want her to fall in love with online me. I want her to fall in love with real me is how I kind of look at it. And so he tries to be in her life as much as mm, possible in order to win her over in real mm-hmm. life to match that imaginary guy that she's in love with through online. Hmm. You told me an interesting fact about this movie, Hudson. And it did? I, I didn't, yeah, before, <laughs> I think it, I think you said it. But Just for fun? Well, the, the, the woman that Jimmy Stewart falls in love with that plays the, the female oh, right. protagonist supposed is supposed to be her... her grandma is her grandma so it happens in the oh. same universe because she talks about she had a similar situation or something that she would email yeah so oh, that was that really cool I saw? yeah did you see it you saw it gibby yeah, i did heard about that we could give me something to talk about did you watch the whole thing uh-huh it took me watch 30 minutes of it we had to leave so speaking of shirtless latino heartthrobs mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> Segway. in 1998 director martin campbell this is post golden eye pre-casino royale teams up with executive producer steven spielberg to bring to life a reimagining of zaro who at this time has been Zorro? What is Zorro? Like Bizarro? Like Zorro? Yeah, the way that yeah. you pronounce is that is Bizarro. Is it Zorro? Zorro? Zorro. 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 You watch the movie, right? Zorro. Say it repeatedly. Yeah. <laughs> Look out, yeah, here comes Zorro. <laughs> I think it's up for interpretation. No, nope. it's not. <laughs> Certainly is not. I'm looking at these string of letters right now. Here. Very specific. So at this time, um, Zorro. Zorro. <laughs> Well, we know you what this we know what, we know what this segment's going to be about. <laughs> Had been absent from uh, the big or small screen for over forty years. So, in the film, uh, Welsh actor Anthony Hopkins somehow plays the original Zorro, Don, Don Diego de la Vega. Makes sense. Who sets a course of revenge after Don Rafael Montero murdered his wife and raised his daughter as his own? So, so uh, I actually think that Anthony Hopkins is the most convincing he's Spaniard so in this movie. He's fantastic in this. Oh, he's yeah. amazing in it, yeah. but he's the most convincing, like <laughs> ethnically. <laughs> Really? In this movie, to me, it, including the including the lead who is actually yeah. ethnically. Yes, but his accent feels put on like the whole time. Yeah, <laughs> That's just kind of it's kind of him. It's very similar to uh, my mom's previous pick of Count of Monte Cristo. This guy was in prison for a number of years. Um, he gets out. Hopkins trains a new Zorro. <laughs> Played by the always charming Antonio Banderas. I'm gonna argue yeah. with that. Oh, you guys don't I'm like him? You, no, I don't dislike you him. Know, he played he played one of the best characters. They of just all time fist bump. By the <laughs> you're, you're a Banderas guy. You're a Banderas guy. Me too, brah. Me too, brah. Big Banderas guy. I knew you were. Um, so he trains him to take the reins of Zorro, not only in the ways of fighting, but also how to charm in a great kind of rain in Spain style montage, just in time to stop Montaro. Rain in Spain. Yeah, you know um, my fair lady my fair reference. Lady. Yeah, yeah. Oh, tra- trains him to be it. trains him to be. Uh, oh, got it, got it. Established as a charming uh, uh, aristocrat, okay. that kind of thing. Do you think he did a good job? Yeah, T band. No, do you think do you think that Zorro did a good job of training 
whatever Antonio Banderas's character, Lil, yeah. Lil, Lil Zorro, yeah, Lil Zorro, <laughs> in being like a charming, he was pretty charming. Oh, no, no. That like or suave or he's uh, pretty suave. Oh yeah, I'd hit oh, that. Yeah, <laughs> I feel like Band- I feel like the Banderas Hi, character Mom. is so goofy. <laughs> He's just like he's he is, but it's but that's but that's charming stuff. to me. I mean, like him attempting—that's part of the what makes yes, it fun. But, but it's not charming in the way that Hopkins Zorro is is charming. Well, of course not. It's, but like, they're very different. But that's what so, that's sort of throws they're, they're me. Different in this movie. One is good and one is not. That's, <laughs> is that the yeah, I'm but kidding. if you ma- if you made another character that exact same way, that's not interesting. I agree. They need okay. they need to counterbalance each other in that way. But it also feels to me like Hopkins would be like, "Why the hell am I training this bozo to be me?" He does say <laughs> I that. I think he was movie. like that. Yeah, yeah. that's okay. kind of what the movie is. <laughs> so, anyways, all that um, charm training comes in handy when Banderas falls in love with Hopkins' daughter. Who had been, you know, raised by the other guy, played by Catherine Zeta Jones. Kind of a uh, the other guy was played Sounds by Catherine Zeta Jones. Familiar to the last movie your mom picked, where Jeez, the kid really, had the wrong parent. We're off the rails. Off the rails. By this, by this point. Keep going. Keep going. Um, so clearly, my mom has a thing for guys going to prison and then getting revenge. Uh, I said I should ask her if she's seen Old Boy. Oh yeah, very very similar. Play it for him. <clears throat> Don't watch that, Mom. <laughs> so, Mask of Zorro is a perfectly crafted, old-fashioned adventure movie that leans on practical stunts over CGI. And I, of course, adore these kinds of films. <clears throat> They're so far, few and far between. And you'd think that during this time in Hollywood that they'd make more of these grand-scale adventure flicks because so much money was being thrown at these films. But instead, the mid to late 90s were this weird time where CGI wasn't quite there yet, but that didn't stop them from going way over the top on like Wild Wild West or The Mummy, when those films could have been awesome had they just relied on practical effects and stunts. The matte paintings <clears throat> in this movie are stunning. It's really beautiful. The set pieces, Gibby. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so here's the thing about these films. So my mom, my brother, and I uh, had a pretty rough go at it after my father died in the late 80s. And at least for a good decade there, for good or bad, we just wanted to disappear from reality. So um, there's even a line in this film where Banderas says, I miss my brother. And Hopkins responds with, your brother is dead. We lose the ones we love. We cannot change it. Put it aside. And he responds, how? How can I do what is needed when all I feel is hate? And Hopkins holds up the Zorro mask. And he the says, what? God, <laughs> you guys. Holds up the Zorro. We're playing this clip Zorro anyway. <laughs> mask. Yeah, this is like my really heart rendering. If you want to edit that out, no, just I love start it. the, okay. Zorro mask by saying, you hide it with this. And so for me and my family, that Zorro mask was escaping into film. We hide it with this. We, we hide it by escaping into film. And, and maybe that, that time would have been better spent talking about our pain and trauma, but I wouldn't have the connection to film that I do now had we not done that. Uh, so I look on back on these films as, a, as kind of longingly, and, and I love a con- that I have a connection to these films with my mom. And I hope is that as I follow my own filmmaking career that I can provide an outlet like this for a new generation of parents and children to connect over. And that maybe there's some escapism, but also that there is some connection in a certain way that I can tell these things that I've been through, through my filmmaking as well. Is this a film you and your mom watch together? Like you guys connected with it? Yeah. Gotcha. I mean, you know, it's not like we sat around like every Friday night with popcorn and watched Zorro. (laughs) But um, yeah, we we did see it together. But, But it's just these types of films right these are the films that we disappeared to into as a family we didn't talk about them we just we needed that escape these types of films became that for me i was even more angry about watching this movie than i was about your mom's previous swashbuckling sexy movie <laughs> i had a great time watching I this you. movie yeah. i really had a lot of fun even though i thought a lot of it was terrible anthony hopkins made up for all of it. I wanted him in every He's scene. He's got so much weight to his performance. It was, Everything it he does. It really is great. But at the beginning, when it's his Zorro, like saving the day. You like that better? Well, yes. I liked cool. everything Hopkins better than Banderas. I, that, his character of Zorro was so much more interesting. But the thought 
imagining it being Anthony Hopkins in that Zorro costume, like swinging around and, and like <laughs> jumping and doing these flips and stuff was insane. Yeah, really short. Really, yeah. really fun. I don't think it's a great movie, but I think it's a I think it's a great '90s blockbuster. I think it's totally worth what it's supposed to be. So this this you know. was one of my favorite movies of the '90s. Like I saw it so many times, and it's been a while since I've seen it. But as soon as the opening credit started and the music, that <laughs> <laughs> I don't know the music. I don't, great, I don't remember that that part great of the theme song. <laughs> <laughs> There's so many memories kept flooding back. And uh, it's, it's been a while since I've seen it, but I still love it. And fun fact, this is the first movie that my wife and I watched together. Aww. Oh, wow. Because my mom recommended yeah, it to you guys. Susan. We actually, our first kiss was watching this film. What? Oh, what? You guys and made that, out in the back row? It was just a kiss. Uh, it, was at, it wasn't at theater. It was at my parents' house. Ooh, Ooh, a scandal. Wait, how, how old were you there? In their bed. <laughs> What? Did you hear that, Kim? Did you hear that? Uh, we were, I was 25. She was living, younger. Living at home. So I remember first reading about this film in the mid-90s uh, when it was originally going to be Robert Rodriguez follow-up to a favorite of mine, Desperado. So Rodriguez wanted to do a kind of a scrappier Zorro film with an all-Latino cast, but him and the studio split over budget, ironically. They refused to give him $45 million that he wanted to make the movie. So they hired Martin Campbell and set a budget of $60 million. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. And then went $10 million over budget. Well, I think that that's wow. actually really interesting because I don't know what Desperado was made for, but like Robert Rodriguez, seven, of course. Seven is, million, yeah. He's, he's definitely mean, he's, low budget. But he's guy. known as the right. guy who made El Mariachi for $7,000 right. or whatever. Yeah. So like, of course, they're going to they're gonna be like, why do you need 60? Yeah. You, right. you can do it for he always $2 only gets seven thousand dollars. <laughs> <laughs> but I bet that that has happened a lot. It's probably why the Spy Kids movies look the way they do. That was all him. I'm uh, still surprised that you just don't like Antonio Banderas. I think he gives a great comedic performance in this movie. But I think that's part of the problem. It's really I don't want too. it to be all this like so goofy. I want it's just not believable. Where, where like it, so it feels like a disconnect in the movie because Hopkins is so believable as this like goofy Lone Ranger looking, you know, guy. And then Banderas, it's just, it's not believable at all. It's like slapstick and, and he's just... I believe in him. I love it. Love yeah. that stuff. It's got some great fighting and the horse riding scenes were pretty awesome. There's one where he's riding on the horse and does that flip on it. It's... It's... <laughs> Quite a I thought somebody was going like, to I can imagine That's it. what I was saying. Yeah, remember it? No, I don't remember that part. Yeah, let's play that clip. <laughs> sure, <it happened. laughs> Play the clip. Play the clip, Jordan. I'm not, I'm not Did sure. Did you land on an adjective yet? I'm not sure how to say this the right way, so it might come <laughs> out wrong, but like, I don't get the Zorro character. Like, I don't get, it, what is it based in? Is it like an old legend? Was it a book? Like, what is it? I think it's the it? legend of Zorro. Or Zorro. For no, sure. but really, I, like I mean, we should it, know this. I'm just, I just, I don't know the origin of it. I mean, I don't know anything about Zorro. I mean, I've seen the movie, but I don't know anything about Zorro beyond he's got a mask. Like what's I his deal? Is there a yeah. radio, radio serial maybe? Is that what it was? Maybe, but was I don't know if it was a story book, book before series. that. And there were movies. But yeah, before, he's a uh, you know Mexican um, freedom fighter type of guy fighting okay. against yeah, the. Uh, he's a superhero. I mean, he was is uh, it, is created he, in novels back in. But the was he 90s. big in Mexico, or was it like an American story about Mexican it's culture? Created by an American pulp writer. 
yeah, there you go. like that. Hmm. Great, great. I mean, it's just a great concept for a character. I wish we had more of this kind of stuff. Well, I guess that's kind of what I'm getting at. I don't understand the like meat of the concept. Like, what really is the context? It's kind of, of it. Robin Hoodie. Uh, is that yeah? Because yeah. he's because he's actually Spanish. Yeah. Right. So he's a traitor. Well, to, it's very much to Batman too. Is this yeah. wealthy guy who would go out and dress up and okay. free the people? And got it. Got so, it. So yeah, in the world of the movie, like. In world. the original Zorro is Don Diego. Like, that's always been him. So Anthony Hopkins, the movie basically starts at the end of the Zorro legend that we're aware of. And then Antonio Banderas comes in and just, just starts it. ruins it. That makes it awesome. And Catherine Zeta-Jones, huh? <laughs> yeah, she's an, act, she's yep. an actor. She's, she's an actress. She's she good. Yep. She did. This was like her... Launched her career? Yeah, basically. For, for five years. And then she... Got married really, and yeah. quit. What's uh what's up for <laughs> what's up for grabs here? Some Jordan? Jojo. Got some yeah. some new Barbie stuff? Numero Uno. Woo. Ooh, we're in the number ones. What, what? Wait, did yeah. you did your mom's place these in order? Uh no. yeah. No, mine either. Mine just mine yeah. didn't. Uh, I, made, I, I asked her list. generally like what order she would put them so in. So this is her favorite movie. I think so. Let's we'll hear from her from the oh, um horse's mouth seems rude. <laughs> well, yeah. I don't know. From the lady herself. Number one. <laughs> Hitchcock's 1963 nature run-amuck horror masterpiece, The Birds. Starring Tippi Hedren as Melody Daniels, a troublemaking San Francisco socialite hot for a man she meets in a pet store, becomes the target in the original Birdemic when she surprise visits him in, a, in the small town that he's from. Why does my wonderfully square mom love this movie? Well, I thought Tippi Hedren was so pretty, and I loved the idea of the lovebirds, the suspense of what was happening in the little birds. girl. It was scary and suspenseful. Covered my eyes in the party and the school scene and was afraid of birds outside for a while, but just loved the storyline. It was exciting, and what was going to happen next kept me engaged. I still love to watch it. Totally so, sounds so, like I wrote that. <laughs> sounds like your mom's a little rounder than we thought. Yeah, not as square as... <laughs> not, yeah. Not exactly your usual helping of psychological suspense and the twisted minds of men. This Hitchcock is a gory study in building terror and panic. But maybe more than that, it's an exercise of insane excess. One scene in particular comes to mind. There's a gasoline spill and we see a dude totally combust. And we watch in horror as the fire spreads from car to car. Cut with these crazy wooden shots of Tippi Hedren watching and reacting. Then we watch all the insanity from the perspective of a seagull. Like we're up in the air with the gulls just hanging, watching people burn and panic and die. And then thousands of birds are attacking firemen and everyone else and more fire and horses and going haywire and cars are wrecking and it's complete insanity that seems nuts it is totally nuts and so this kind of makes me like my mom you could never say that my mom is a woman of excess she's she's just it's just not some but she loves excess in movies i mean the last movie that we talked about was it's a mad 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 world which is pure excess and then the birds is just if I had a time machine, I would go to 1963 and I would watch this movie in a theater with people because I don't think anything like this had ever been seen. Mm. It is completely insane. Well, there's a cool little factoid of the, the UK premiere that when people were leaving the theater, they had hidden speakers in the trees to sound like birds flapping. And no, that's one of my Isn't favorite. That that's one of my favorite facts because it's like Hitchcock was just so psychotic. He's like, F these people, <laughs> I'm going to torment them after the movie's over yeah. when they get home yeah. and for the rest of their so lives. Great. It's amazing. And I'm not sure I'd seen anything this violent or gory before 
that that came out before 1963. I mean, like the scene where the group of school children leave and they're like frantically mm-hmm. running down the street and they're just being like run down by Mauled, this incessant yeah. flock of crows. <laughs> and they're just like, they're just destroying these children. They're knocking them down and like eat, eating oh. their faces. And <laughs> those kids just, probably should have stayed in the school building. Would have been a good idea, kids. Yeah, but but they were they were being like stalked out there because I mean those shots of the playground covered oh, that, in crows. Yeah, that one scene, the famous, the, yeah, yeah, one the, the iconic scene, scene yeah. with her. Uh, it's as good as it cracked up to be. And what I loved about that scene was that the children in the background, like the choir singing mm-hmm. during it, and they're singing this really weird song. It's pretty eerie. Uh, Yes, yeah. the the sound in the in in this yeah, movie so is it's just, it's just it's, well. The thing is, they don't really sound like birds. Yeah. No, They're, I don't. Even, I don't which, know. Which is kind of ma- makes it funny. They, they, apparently, they got that sound by taking a reel to reel tape and just running it back and forward, and it sounds more like that than it, <laughs> it does birds. <laughs> This is this is one of Hitchcock's signature films, and the one I've probably seen the least. I, I've never totally understood the love for it. I don't think it's a bad film, but I kind of just don't think birds are that scary. But in a way, I really admire what he was trying to do here, because up to this point in his career, Hitchcock had kind of followed the same formula of normal guy accidentally stumbles into crazy scenario plots. And here what he does is he goes with more of a traditional horror concept, which I don't know if it was really that traditional at the time, which is... There, I mean, there were some, but they were all super, like, D movies. Yeah. Like, Attack of the Giant Leeches. Well, but th- but this was, what if we take a seemingly harmless thing you see or encounter every day and it just turns on you for no good reason? Mm-hmm. It'd be like if Gibby turned on us. Yeah, that is kind of scary, actually. <laughs> Gibby wield- wielding be. a knife standing at your door. <laughs> um, so I think, for me, I admire the effort more than the final product. But, man, you talk to people in that generation about this film, it scared the hell out of people. Mm-hmm. My dad used to talk me about it saying maybe you could sell it it still freaked him out talking about it you know 20 30 years later one of the endings that was considered for the film that i always thought would have been awesome was a shot where the entire golden gate bridge was covered mm-hmm. in birds like would've i loved better. that i don't know why they didn't do that it would have been better than the actual ending of this movie i love the actual ending of this movie i think it's <laughs> awesome like, well, that's the end <laughs> i love that he's willing to leave it open-ended it's definitely open um and I, I i think there are so many interesting choices like none of these birds are birds that they're none of them are birds of prey they're all birds that are totally benign and i agree like birds aren't that scary which is kind of the point I it, guess. no it's, it's totally like the point they become scary yeah and and i think the other point is that this movie isn't about oh birds can be scary yeah. this movie is about like what would happen like communism like it's about panic it's about it could have been well, a little bit I mean, it, it probably have. is it takes some of the fun out of it but <laughs> but it probably is but like i love the mob mentality in it the the panic in it and the these people like what what would you do well, it's it's also it's uh, it's also easy for me to sit here and say birds aren't scary. If I got attacked by three birds right Absolutely. now, it would probably scare the living hell out of me. <laughs> yeah, I loved it. How like in 1963, apparently they were okay with giving out personal information because he shows up to that guy and she's like, "Hey, where's uh so and so live?" He's like, "Oh, oh, Alice. She lives in a house across the bay." <laughs> Her first name's Alice, last name Brenner. She weighs 67 pounds. Would you like her social security number two? Here it is. Just I love all your impressions with Edward James Cagney. See? What are we doing? See? Just, it's just small town. It's, you you uh, bring yeah. up a good point there, Jordan, that one of the big risks in this movie is watching kids get attacked. Oh, I don't know uh, if you'd ever seen that up to that point. I mean, I've like, like, hardly bleeding. still seen it. People yeah. are still afraid to do yeah. it. Yeah, he kind of just went for it. Oh, I mean, it's, it is some of the most disturbing footage I've ever seen. And I mean, it helps that 
that doesn't look real. But it doesn't, it's not that it doesn't look real in a like well, hokey dumb way. It's like really artistically fascinating to look at the way that it's composited. And I've known that this was one of my mom's favorite movies since I was a kid. She's always told me that the birds was one of her favorites. And I, I still can't quite wrap my head around like my mom sitting and loving this movie because it's just people being terrorized. And that's just not something my mom's interested in. But I really respect her for this choice. I really like admire my mom for going and seeing this and for, for loving it. But she loves Hitchcock. She sent me a long list of all her favorite Hitchcock movies. And I don't know. I think that's, I think that's cool. It's cool. 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 They're coming. They're coming. All right, Gibby, uh, we're looking for Kim's uh, number one pick here. 20 years after The Birds, Glenn Close, William Hurt, Kevin Klein, Meg Tilly, Tom Berenger, Jeff Goldblum, Joe Beth Williams, Kevin Costner's leg. <laughs> they all showed up for Kim's number one pick. 1983's The Big Chill. Kim's final movie also has this as a tagline on the poster. How much love, sex, fun, and friendship can one person take? Nice. <laughs> That's the tagline of the That's poster. The tagline apparently the not. Movie. Apparently not that much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not a whole lot. You should ask Kim. Pretty the interesting one. Uh, it's nominated for Best Picture, Best Screenplay, directed and co-written by the '80s screenwriter extraordinaire Larry Kasdan. This movie hooked me from the opening chords of "Heard It Through the Grapevine" and opening montage all the way to the end. I never wanted to hear that song again. And then I watched this movie, and it's used so well. Yeah. That and opening I, montage. I, I loved it. It's brilliant. Incredible. It's, it's, it's very famous. It's some soundtrack. of the best visual storytelling. Yeah. It, it's it's incredible. Yeah, yeah, I got that later in my notes, but the just the way it starts, you immediately know who each character is, where they're at in life, mm -hmm. and how they kind of relate it back to where they get to. Uh, but anyway, the Big Chill tells the story of seven old college friends who reunite for a long weekend after the funeral of one of their former college mates. It had been about 12, 10 or 12 years since they all graduated college and went their separate ways. And during this weekend, old resentments pop up, past flames rekindle, hard questions are asked, and genuine friendship is seen. And how much love, sex, fun, and friendship can one person take the movie's weird tagline ask? All I can say is after watching this movie, I was ready to take more. <laughs> hey, what? <laughs> That's a good line. I loved it. I'd never actually seen this movie all the way through before watching it for this episode and just those scenes of the actors dancing around to the soundtrack but you know i was hooked from the beginning now, every character in the movie is very well defined and it speaks about a lot of the insecurities and doubts that i think we all have 10 to 15 years after college when life isn't what you thought it was going to be when you were not that idealistic 22 year old and i love how it also points out how at some point in your life you can be super close to friends and think these are my friends for the rest of your life and then 10 to 15 years later you haven't talked to them in four or five years tom berenger had a great quote about the movie in an interview he said it's about that period in life when let me do my Tom Berenger. Let me start over. Is it going to be like <laughs> your Jim, Jim Shagney? Yeah. <laughs> about that period in life. <laughs> See? <laughs> Tom Berenger said it best. About that period in life when you're beginning to realize you have limitations, that you will never accomplish certain goals and dreams. Suddenly, you know you're not a kid anymore. And Mary Kay Place said, when you're in college, you think you can do anything, be anything, accomplish anything. And suddenly you reach a point where you're settled into what you're going to be. And once you realize that, everything stops. Then the questions begins. And I think that's some of the questions this movie asked, at least to me. And I, I enjoyed it. I don't know what you guys thought, but I was 
super impressed with it. Yeah, this is a film that made no sense to me as a kid, and, and it grows more and more powerful as I get older. So the, the progression of time, how it impacts friendships, how we change the longer we're on this planet, just so many powerful themes. It, it explores a period of life that I don't think films have fully tapped into. We see a lot of films about being a kid, being old, being a woman, being a man, but this particular phase of life that sort of resides in the middle doesn't get a ton of attention and maybe that's more noticeable to me because that's kind of where I'm at right now I think why it resonates with that's why it resonates with parents so much more than kids and and I say that because your mom wasn't the only one to pick this film my mom picked this too and yours already picked it so I was like I gotta pick something else and she was pissed. <laughs> uh, she but sent her a Facebook but, message. Kim. <laughs> yeah. But this is a group of hippies who have turned into yuppies. And it's not just seeing them as they are that's so interesting, but knowing who they used to be and how they've changed. You mentioned Kevin Costner's leg and his story is, you know, that the story of his involvement with the film is something of film lore for people who aren't familiar with that. Costner was originally supposed to be in this movie. This was going to be one of his early roles, and he was the friend who commits suicide at the beginning. And that's what the reference, the, the reference, the big chill is this chill that's brought over them as one of their friends has died. He was the friend who was kind of wayward, went off path. I don't know, got involved in drugs or whatever. And the scenes they actually shot scenes of Costner that were deleted and have sort of become part of movie lore since no one's ever seen them. And Kazan has always refused to release them or do any sort of director's cut, which I thought was kind of interesting. You talk about Kevin Costner being, it'd be interesting to see him. I actually, you know, they talk so much about the role and I just keep the, the guy that committed suicide and I picture Kevin Costner and then I could see it. And, and to me, the movie just did fit really well and lived in. And I think that's because all the actors are A, great, and B, like there's a rapport between all of them when they just go back and forth that is like friends. Um, and it, so it, like it the kind show of, friends? Yeah. Like there's Monica and Chandler. Um, Ross. Ross. <laughs> Joey. Phoebe. Phoebe. <laughs> Rachel. Uh, <laughs> Good job naming yeah. them. Gunther's on that channel. Uh, did you know that they all lived, all the actors lived together for a whole month before the filming, and then a once month? it started, wow. they hung out together all the time because there's nothing else to do in South Carolina. I mean, I think you can really feel that. Yeah, you can. Also, sorry, South Carolina. Yeah, yeah. yeah. At first, this movie's really funny. I was surprised by how mm-hmm. much I laughed during it. I didn't. Uh, I didn't get to revisit this, which is a shame because I remember really loving this movie and for whatever reason, is not stuck in my brain. But then I was just looking through some quotes about the movie, and the actress Mary Kay Place said this great quote that really connected with me, and I feel like it really captures what the movie's about. When you're in college, you think you can do anything, be anything. <laughs> did you already read this book? <laughs> yes. Yes, Gibby did. Yes, I read it. I thought you read Tom Berenger quote. And then he read yeah, the Mary, Mary Kay Place quote. Damn, mother. <laughs> <laughs> I paying attention. <laughs> This is not the first time I've done this. (laughs) Wow. Uh, I didn't see this movie until I watched it. Yeah, I hadn't seen it before uh, watching this. And uh, I'd always wanted to see it, but I I didn't never, I guess, really had a reason. And a couple months before I watched it, I had a, a good friend that killed himself. And so we, and me and that group of friends who we'd all known each other for about 12 years. Well, they've all known each other longer. I've known them for about 12 years and we all got to, we were all together at the funeral and, but I was really struggling with his suicide and, and just like trying to, you know, wrap my head around it. And so I kind of came into this movie with this, like, and I needed it to be something for mm-hmm. me. I needed it to be like this exploration of this thing that I was, that I've been dealing with. And, and it, sadly, it like, it didn't, it didn't do that at all. Like I needed this like big release from it, but I still really loved it. And it hit so many points. It just didn't have that like big 
climactic thing that I yeah. was looking for, which is completely unfair of me to walk into a movie being like, hey, solve my problems, will you? But it did handle so much of that friendship so perfectly. I felt like it went a little off the rails when it yeah, got into a bu- some really weird. really weird sex stuff between the characters. Oh, dude, that... That stuff yeah, was the last odd. ten minutes where was I'm like, kind of I've almost ruined. Unnecessary. It. I, I have a I have a good number of groups of friends. I'm I'm a, I'm just a guy who like becomes part of lots of pre- already existing groups of friends. None of them. No one's doing any of that. It's just it was really threw me for a loop. Um, but I think still the movie's totally emotionally resonant and and yeah. and, and wonderful. Uh, and the acting's phenomenal. And I think it was a really great warm up for Goldblum for his character in Jurassic Park. So yeah, that, yeah. that's a, he's great as like the uh, pseudo intellectual hornball. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, th- I mean Kevin Klein is. Mm. Awesome. I think he was the kind of the standout in the cast. And well, him and John Glenn, John Hurt, what? William Hurt, William Hurt. Yeah, William Hurt. Uh, he's so he's good. Great. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just think it's a really brilliant movie, and, and the, I mean the idea is simple, mm-hmm. but it's so well executed. I am really curious about like it, it's essentially the same setup as it. Yeah, it's got which is now. which seems kind of weird, and I think it came first. Obviously, not the movie. No, the book was after. The book was eighty-five. Oh, really? Yeah, I think so. To me, it always reminded me of The Breakfast Club in the mm. sense you've got this—you know—it's it's about an era in your life, a stage of life, a season of life where you've got this group of people who are, for whatever reason, forced to be in a confined space together and work through things. So it's like Breakfast Club. 10, 15, 20 years later. That's mm-hmm. how I always looked at it. And I really love that about it. And you're right. It's so cool when you see such a simple concept. It was just all about execution. And this was... Was this Kasdan's first directorial? Second, yeah. It was uh, the second? Second was... Uh, first was Body Heat. Oh, he did Body Heat before oh, this. yes. Oh, okay. Quite, quite, quite different. That's a hell of a good one-two punch yes. right, right out of the gate. That's Amazing. impressive. Uh, one other thing I think this movie does really well, and we can move on after this, is, uh, is with friends, how you'll have super dark and serious conversations. And like get real heavy, and then immediately somebody makes a joke, and it just lightens the mood. And this movie mm-hmm. does a great job of that, that, that you can only capture with friends. In L.A., I don't know who to trust. I feel like everybody wants something from me. Well, that sounds terrible, but it's true. Yeah, tell me about it. It's a cold world out there. Sometimes I think I'm getting a little frosty myself. I don't know what people think about me. I don't know why they like me, or even if they do like me. You don't have that problem here. You know I don't like you. Me either. Ditto. Relax. The three of us, me, Hudson, and Gibby, we've known each other since high school, and we had a friend who committed suicide when we were in college, and so we got kind of an early version of the Big Chill. And there was a weekend where we all spent time together in the same house and kind of went through this and it was I look back on as one of the best and worst weekends of my life mm-hmm. even mm-hmm. now you know the what it brought us there was obviously terrible but coming back together even though it had only been like a couple of years since we'd all really really hung out was really powerful and as a weekend that'll always stick with me so yeah. th- for that reason this movie really resonates with me and I imagine all the sex was awkward well, yeah it wasn't fun <laughs> it had to happen you gotta do what you gotta do and we've continued on that week from yeah. that time uh-huh. on where we, we still all get do together it. and it, have actually chill moment it's actually true. Had that not happened, I don't know if we would have been as close. Yeah, I mean, as I hadn't now. talked to you guys in probably a whole summer. You hadn't. It had been a while. Been yeah, six, seven months. It's a little different because we didn't have any friends that were girls in college. But yeah, well, you know, <laughs> it's true. Or high school, or now. <laughs> 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 <It's true. laughs> 
All right, let's move on to Lance's uh, Lynn. Number one. Lance's mom. Number one. So my mom's final pick is Driving Miss Daisy. Tells the story of an unlikely friendship between an older white Jewish woman named Daisy Worthen and her black driver, Hoke Colburn. Set against the American South of the mid-1900s, the two form a lifelong friendship as they traverse through prejudices external and between one another. Driving Miss Daisy is a film that was huge in 1989 when it came out. It was nominated for nine Oscars, won four, including Best Picture, Actress for Jessica Tandy, and screenplay. It was a film that was referenced in pop culture a lot at the time, had a very recognizable score you'll still hear sometimes in commercials and other venues, and was definitely a huge hit by every account. But in spite of all of that, I feel like it's a film that hasn't held that elite status over the past 30 years. Not that people don't like it, but I just feel like it's not watched much anymore. So when I revisited this film, I didn't quite know what to expect, and I thought it might not not hold up. Well, it does hold up. It's not dated. The themes are still very powerful, and what carried the film to to such success in 89 still holds up in 2019, which is the friendship between Morgan Freeman and Jessica Tandy. There are a lot of films about America's racist past that were made around this time. Mississippi Burning, Color Purple, and a host of others. And often these films were, were extremely serious, focusing on the clash between large groups of people with different ideologies. This film works because it's less serious and more personal. It focuses on a friendship that represents the larger struggle, and it's not afraid to interject humor into these serious thematics. What makes the film even more powerful to me is the decision to not just make Miss Daisy a white woman, but a Jewish white woman, which really adds to the conflict here. It's not like she's necessarily on top of the social ladder herself, and even though she doesn't want to admit it, she's as much a pariah as Hoke is. So we're not only dealing with their status conflict, but with her coming to grips with her own delusional perspective about her place in society. There's a really great scene where Hoke is driving her to her synagogue one morning, and there's a traffic shutdown. Hoke gets to find out what's going on, comes back to the car, and informs her that someone has bombed her synagogue. And that's when you realize these two characters have a lot more in common than they realized. Hoke goes on to tell the story of a friend who was lynched, and the way the film bounces back and forth between these lighthearted moments and these intensely tragic realities is what I think really separates it from a lot of the films that tackle the same subject matter. I remember one time back down and making, oh, I couldn't have been no more than 10 or 11 years old, I reckon. I had this friend named Apoda. One day there, his daddy was hanging in a tree. Now, just the day before, we'd all been pitching horseshoes, see? Him laughing and carrying on and talking about how me and Poda was going to have strong right arms, just like him. Lord, there he was, hanging up yonder in the tree. Had his hands tied behind him. Flies was all over. I tell you, I just threw up right there where I stand. You go on and cry. I'm not crying. This is one I did rewatch for the show, so you're welcome. Sweet. It, it's such <laughs> the a... One, thanks for the doing one, your job. This is yeah. the one he rewatched for It's the so show. surprising to me that this won all those awards, not because it's not a fantastic film but because it's so small and it's so kind of undramatic like mm-hmm. you're watching mm-hmm. these little moments all those moments that you're expecting to come like oh man there's gonna be a big racism mm-hmm. moment there's mm-hmm. gonna yeah, be a big death that stuff never comes and right. it's this this the sweet story of these two best friends who have nothing in common and to me it's as much a, a movie about getting old as it is a movie about racism um, and that kind of right. thing. But it's very much, so you can true. tell that the, the writer, mm-hmm. the filmmaker had gone through this scenario before. Like you feel like he's kind of the, 
what's his name, Bully, Dan Aykroyd yeah. plays the kid. That's kind of his point of view of this, of his parents growing older. And I think in the 80s, I think the reason this may be connected with so so many people in the Academy Awards and all that is because that was a struggle a lot of people were going through at that time of their parents getting older and no longer hanging on to reality. It feels so, watching it, it just feels so, it doesn't feel like an Oscar movie. It's not big and sweeping. Yeah, it's you, not big. Yeah. And it, you it make, definitely feels like a, a play. You like make a, a great play. point about the subtlety of it that I didn't think of. And I think what often frustrates me about movies about, we, we talked about one that I hated, which was Crash. And I think that one of the one of the really important things you have to do when you're making a movie about racism is deal with the subtle reality of it. Mm-hmm. I think we have this perspective now of racism in the 1950s that if we took a time travel machine, it'd just be like cops with dogs chasing <laughs> black people and lynchings. Yeah. And it's like, those were the extreme examples of things, but that's not what life was really like. And, and in a way that makes it, that's not to cover up what was going on, it's to say it was actually scarier than that yeah Mm -hmm. because racism was so subtle it wasn't something you could point your finger on and go attack it and that's what this movie does it deals with what i think was a more realistic thing most people then never saw a lynching or got lynched or you know were facing cops in the street and being beat down by water hoses that's not what was going almost and that's what we remember now because those were the extreme examples but this film deals with racism in such a realistic way whereas a crash goes overboard with because that's the dramatic thing to do and yeah. that's what i loved about you so you're dead on about the subtlety of it i think that's what made it so so yeah impactful. and even even the arc of of the characters in the film it's not like oh god i hate you so much and then by the end they right like, it's such a tiny yeah, small subtle. thing in that in the beginning she refuses to accept help from everybody and the last scene of the film spoiler alert is he's just feeding her pie yeah, yeah. and that's it I and got pretty it's, choked it's, up at that oh, time even though so I wasn't wonderful. like I didn't yeah, feel wonderful. that invested in characters yeah. by that point I'm like oh that's yeah. sweet I think she even says you're my only friend Hulk yeah. like yeah. they yeah. become you're best friends you're my only friend Hulk <laughs> it's pretty good I, I feel like I watch a lot of movies and I'm, I can only think of one example right now and it's a terrible example but it's Exorcist 3 um, <laughs> <laughs> but like where you have two characters that are maybe unlikely friends but they mm-hmm. but you like love watching their friendship so in exorcist 3 it's the priest and the cop i watched the first act of that movie and i'm like god i could just watch a whole movie about their friendship but then inevitably every one of those movies you know the second act comes and one of them dies or Mm. like something happens where you don't get to watch these two people be friends and this movie is so satisfying because you get to watch these this beautiful friendship the whole time and so i think you're exactly right about like it's it's undramatic in this way that is so satisfying and so beautiful just sit and like soak it up i don't think you'll ever see a movie like this again i don't think anybody can make movies like this anymore what you, you so the, a movie can't the one movie that won best picture last year was was green book uh-huh. and green book's gotten a lot of flack I, I don't think that was all deserved but that wasn't one thing green book did was it had these like it had to have the moment where right. he gets jumped by yeah. a group and I was like yeah oh, like that stuff drove me crazy it did Again, all the things not, we were expecting in this yeah that never not went. because it didn't happen of course that stuff right. happened but it that wasn't the day-to-day reality that's of what why was the tagline was what driving miss daisy should have been <laughs> The, the green book. Um, so, so we we all grew up in the South, and I have never heard the names Hoke or Bully in my entire <laughs> life. Either, <laughs> Not either. sure where yeah. they got those from. Yeah, it's always funny when Hollywood tries to do the South, and you're like, oh, I think it's, I think the writer's the playwright, and I think he's a Southern well, guy. Well, this I mean, no, this what? Let me say, I don't, and I'm not, I don't mean that as an attack on this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean like that was the only thing. That right. Was a little like, it's always yeah, funny yeah, when Hope. Dan Aykroyd tries to do the South. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, th- I liked Aykroyd in this. Oh, it's I mean, funny as they had pretty good makeup. I thought he's pretty weak too. Really? I didn't mind him. Nominated for Best Supporting Actor. He was. That's yeah. wild. Yeah. yeah, I'd never seen this movie before watching it for this episode. Really? Really? Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. yeah. I liked it quite a bit. And I think... An Oscar movie you an haven't Oscar movie. seen? Yeah, there's quite a bit of those, in mm. fact. 
I know of them. So, You've so heard this, of them. Yeah. This movie holds a little bit of place in both my mom and I's heart as well because we not only watched this movie together, but we also went to see the play together. So when we first really? moved, moved to Atlanta, we had like a season pass to the local theater and, and Driving Miss Days was one of those that we watched. Really? That's yeah. cool. Oh, cool. Yeah. You which, know what, which was better? I don't remember much of the play. Do you know how old the play is? Like, was it playing for like 30 years before this? or was No, it? the play is like in a, written in the 80s. It was, 80s. okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Do you know what these this beat for best picture? Mm-hmm. And it shouldn't have. My left this foot. movie's awesome. My left foot, born on the fourth of July, and Dead Poet Society, yeah. oh. and Field of Dreams. That was a big wow. year. I well, that you know, a, that remember that episode also, where we both argued? Yeah, this is also one of the most controversial Oscar years because one of the most influential films of the '80s wasn't even nominated. Do the right thing by Spike Lee. That's right. Uh, that's right. Yeah, there's a big outcry. Yeah. Well, DMD, huh? Love you, mom. Yeah. Hi, mom. You know the tagline for Miss Daisy was. How much love, sex, fun can, can one driver take? Jeez. Good ending. I'm excited about um, just hanging out with my three buds with no internet all weekend. Yeah, I'm excited the, about getting to a place for dinner that has gonna internet. Go, gonna go swimming in the in the water that we're currently on. I'm gonna dip a toe in. I don't yeah. know. If I'm gonna it's really I think I'll dip all my toes in. I'm gonna get nowhere closer to it than I am now. Really? Yeah, that's kinda, my plan. I'm kind of with Lance no. on this. Buzzkills. Yeah. All right. I'm going to go to that bed that's got two twin beds. Um, I have started reading a book called Going Clear. There was a about the history of Scientology. Mm-hmm. There was a really good documentary on HBO, and I've heard the book is great, so I've started reading that. It's pretty good so far. I'm really excited about this book that I just finished called How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan. How to um, Change Your Dragon. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's a good one. Uh, yeah, fist bump. There you go. Who wrote Omnivore's Dilemma. He's just a really smart guy, but this book is about psychedelics, as in drugs, psilocybin and LSD and uh, some other fun ones about sort of their uh, medicinal uses or uses in fight addiction and depression and all these things. It was a fascinating book and uh, kind of made me want to eat a bunch of LSD and get weird. Thanks for listening, and- Mom. <laughs> <laughs> Barb, you couldn't do a better job raising this kid than this. <laughs> all right, peace out. Thanks, guys. Let us know how your list differs at Fight About Film on Facebook and Twitter. Email us at fightaboutfilm at gmail.com. Please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. Four Friends Fight About Film is produced by the Brothers Ray in Atlanta, Georgia. This episode was recorded and edited by Jordan Noel. Jermaine Cagney out. So how about you, Michael? Tell us about big-time journalism. Hey, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, where I work, we have only one editorial rule. You can't write anything longer than the average person can read during the average crap. <laughs> I'm tired of having all my work read in the can. You can read Dostoevsky in the can. Yes, but they can't finish it. <laughs> so long, farewell, I'll be just saying goodnight. I hate to go and leave this pretty sight. So long, farewell. I'd like to stay and taste my first champagne. Yes? No. <laughs> so long, farewell, I'll be just saying goodbye. I leave and heave a sigh and say goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>
Must I?